What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. And I didn't believe the father-son relationship between Connery and Ford. I just saw two good actors occupying the same space next to each other. So are you voting thumbs down? Yeah, reluctantly. Because I'm voting thumbs up. Thank you, Roger Ebert, for restoring order to the universe with your thumbs up for Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. He chose wisely. Those were influential critics Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert from their 1989 review of Last Crusade. This week, critic Matt Singer joins us. He's the author of the new book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies. Matt also sits in for the top five movies that Siskel and Ebert got wrong. That and more. Penitent. Penitent. Only the penitent critic will pass. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We're going to be talking about Siskel and Ebert here in a bit, Josh, two film critics who had an immeasurable impact on us as film lovers and as critics, safe to say, wouldn't be doing what we're doing right this very second if it wasn't for those two. Fair enough. Yep. I think that's accurate. We did want to take a moment, though, before all of that to debrief on what I thought was a pretty wonderful weekend Film Spotting had in Iowa City. I got to share rooms with a couple of other hugely influential figures in my life. Started on Friday night with John Irving coming back to what is kind of home for him. He was a student here at the Writers' Workshop, taught at the famed Writers' Workshop, and he was back to talk about his latest novel. He read from a novel that is in progress, obviously one of my favorite writers and the man responsible for one of my favorite movies, a real formative movie in The World According to Garp. First time I ever got to attend a Q&A or any type of event with him. So that was incredible. Then he shows up at the Refocus Film Festival on Saturday. Producer Sam joins me for a screening of The Cider House Rules, which I hadn't seen since it came out in 1999. And afterwards, he gave a 15 or 20-minute monologue on the making of the film, including Josh talking about how the first time the script was ever read, it was at Paul Newman's house because Paul Newman was reading for the role that eventually went to Michael Caine, and Ethan Hawke was there reading for what became Tobey Maguire's role. Took 14 years and like four different sets of directors and talent to ultimately get that film made. So that was fascinating. Yeah, sliding doors story there, huh? Totally. And then Sunday night, after our film spotting live event, we talked about Werner Herzog, and then Herzog was there on stage at the Englert talking about his new memoir and really reflecting more on his life as a as a writer and a poet and it was it was effectively herzogian i have to say see now when you were talking about two formative figures in your life that you got to hang out with i thought you meant me and sam you and sam yeah. well you you're on the list took a little detour somewhere. there <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was good. I don't know. It, it, was it the live show in January, the last time the three of us got together in person? I think so. That sounds yeah. right. So definitely good to hang out. Good to see you and the family settled in Iowa City and um, knew that would be a great fit for you guys, but it's really nice to see it in person as well. The Iowa Book Festival was happening at the same time, as you mentioned, and I had the chance to talk about my own little book, Fear Not. Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies, did a book talk there Saturday morning, got to introduce The Shining as part yeah, of that. Yeah, that was fun. As you did well. a nice job. And thank you. We watched at 10 p.m. and 
the three of us in a row. <laughs> Sophie was there with us as well. Yeah. How fun to see that movie on the big screen. And yeah, Debbie and my high schooler joined us. We got to watch The Music Room as part of Refocus, the Satchajit Ray film, and also took in the Ernest and Celestine animated sequel. So lots to do. Busy weekend. Good time all around, including fitting in a live recording of Film Spotting that we'll we make available in some way, somehow soon. Yeah, we think maybe like last year, it could be a good Thanksgiving time episode. So you will hear a show we did, a segment we did devoted to, as we called it, the enigma of Werner Herzog. We talked about his film and gave you eight films that are sort of a starter pack slash essential Herzog viewing. If you're someone who is familiar with his work, interested in his work, but maybe aren't quite sure where to start. And we had a we had a good turnout, especially considering that there were 55,000 people showing up at the same time over at Kinnick Stadium to watch Caitlin Clark and the Iowa women's basketball team in a record-setting game for women's college basketball. But we had some cinephiles turn out, did have what I thought was a good conversation, and just want to give a shout-out to everyone at the Refocus Film Festival, the executive director of Film Scene in the Fest, Andrew Sherburn, longtime listener, Ben Delgado, who's the programming director of Film Scene and of Refocus. They just did a wonderful job. We could have spent the entire weekend just watching movies there at yeah. the fest. And the schedule and was incredible. We're glad we got in the ones we did, but so many more we could have seen. They just did such a good job. And Sophie, my daughter, when she's home from college and in the summer, she works at Film Scene. I don't know what I can share or not share, so I'll be kind of vague here and just say that I heard what the ticket numbers were for this weekend compared to last year, which was the inaugural Refocus Film Fest. And let's just say it was improved, significantly improved. The numbers reflect the overall experience we had and apparently many others had. So that's great to see. That's good to hear. Let's now get to Siskel and Ebert and to our guest, Matt Singer, it has been a while, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. It has been a little while, but it's it's very nice to uh, to see you guys. I don't think we've ever done a podcast like this where I could actually see you. So no. This is the, the magic of modern technology. <laughs> That's I mean, right. this is fabulous. Now I don't have to like wait. Are you going to go? Oh, okay, exactly. I, can, I can just see if you're talking we'll be so or about much, to talk. So much smoother, I'm How sure. How did we yes. do this in the uh, in the dark ages before these sorts of technology? It's unbelievable. It really is. Matt is the author of the new book, out October 24th, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies. He's also an editor and writer at Screen Crush. And of course, he will be forever and fondly remembered here on Film Spotting as the co-host, along with Allison Wilmore, of the gone but never forgotten film spotting SVU. We're going to get into our top five in a moment. The top five movies Siskel and Ebert got wrong, but we do want to talk about your book. Matt, we were both extremely excited when we saw that this book was coming out and that you were writing it. Start by just giving us a sense of Siskel and Ebert's influence and that show at the movies on you personally. Uh, its influence on me is uh, incalculable, for better or perhaps worse, depending on your point of view, I suppose. But uh, certainly, uh, I would not have 
been a, a film critic without it. I mean, that I, I wonder what I would have done if not for that show. I, I haven't, you know, people have asked me that, but I haven't really get, thought about that. Like, what, where would I be right now? Uh, this is my own personal sliding doors, I guess, is like the one version where, uh, yeah, I watched the show obsessively as a child as I did, or perhaps the alternate world where... I never discovered it, and then I became an accountant or something. I, I don't know. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I watched the show uh, obsessively as a, as a kid, and um, it, you know, it was more than just a TV show I liked, too. It was, it was the thing that first got me interested in, in not just film criticism, but films. I mean, I watched movies as a kid. Everyone watches movies. But I was, I was certainly not... If if the the Criterion Channel had been a thing back then, I wouldn't have been hanging out there watching you know Fellini and and uh, Romare and things like that at that age. I, I I was the kid who just went to the movie theater and saw UHF or Spaceballs or whatever. It really was watching Siskel and Ebert and going, oh, there's other movies too that aren't just silly uh, comedies. That was that was kind of the place where that discovery really really hit me. Um, and obsessively watched the show and then started reading Roger's books, especially when, um, those became, when he started really, uh, pumping out the books, that was another game changer as well, because, you know, I was growing up in suburban New Jersey. I couldn't read the Sun-Times or the Tribune, so I only had the TV show. But, um, yes, absolutely a hugely important thing in, in the arc of my life. Now, come on, Matt. You know, if Siskel and Ebert weren't around, Gene Shalett would have sent you on your path just as well. So <laughs> that's a good point. So I do love know. mustaches. You make a good point. You know, <laughs> yes. I've tried. I have tried to grow that mustache so mm, many times, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't work. I, I don't know how he did it. Good key to good criticism it. for sure. So even though you know the show intimately, having grown up with it, I imagine when you're taking on the book. Now you're really going to do some intense research, come across some things that you didn't know that was part of the fun of the project. But was there anything that surprised you particularly about either one of them as critics? Maybe not even a fact you came across, but just a perception, a shift of what you thought of one of them as a critic, either their taste or uh, something like that, that you would not have discovered if you hadn't taken on this project. Well, I mean, certainly I was, yes, I was very familiar with both of them and and with the show. But, you know, we're talking about a lot of episodes I had never seen. You know, I was not, I was mostly not alive during the very first incarnation of the show at PBS. And then I was, you know, zero to two. So I was not watching uh, Siskel and Ebert or, as it was known then, sneak previews. So there was, you know, there were lots of episodes I had never seen or hadn't seen in a long time. You know, I, 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 it is, it is an interesting show to watch the way that I did it, which was to watch hundreds hundreds and hundreds of episodes incrementally, one by one, going in chronological order from the very beginning to the very end. And watching it that way, it, it, it really is kind of fascinating to watch not just the show and the show evolve, but watch the world of movies evolve over that time. Because, you know, when the show starts, I mean, forget about the internet, forget about DVD, forget about, 
you know, compu personal computers, there's no such thing as a VHS tape when the show starts. So you get to see them first, like, talk about, look at this stuff called a video, you know, a video cassette recorder. People are, have you heard about this thing? You know, like, you're, you're discovering these things with them in real time. Mm. So just watching their, like, for example, their evolving feelings about VHS was very interesting and surprising because when, when they first are talking about it, they're incredibly skeptical, you know, and it reminded me of hearing the way people talk about streaming now. These things are bad. They're going to destroy movie theaters. It's a threat. It's, you know, I want to see it on a big screen. The quality isn't as good. And, you know, and I think when they first, the very first time they talk about it on the show, neither one will cop to owning a VCR. I don't own one of these things. I don't want to mm. own one of these things. That kind of attitude. And within a few years... They both own VCRs, and within a few years, they're not only, like, talking about it, they're, they've realized that VCRs and VHS hasn't really, in that case anyway, had not replaced movie theaters. It had sort of supplemented them, and it had really given a venue for all of these old movies that, you know, previously you could only watch if you caught it on TV, or maybe it got revived at a theater in a in a city or something like that and they were able to recommend and revisit and or in some cases discover all these great films which had been so hard to previously see and suddenly they were acolytes of VHS and they loved talking about VHS. So things like that were certainly very eye-opening and you know I don't know if anyone is going to do what I did and watch hundreds and hundreds of these episodes but it's it's a pretty fascinating deep dive to do and I promise you, if you pick any random episode, if you're interested at all in movies, and why would you be listening to this if you're not? Like, you will find something surprising, fascinating, interesting, unexpected on any random episode you watch of the show. That'll be me and Josh in about a year and a half when AI versions of us are just completely <laughs> producing the show. <laughs> we don't actually ever see each other or talk to each other. We'll embrace, embrace the future, I'm sure. You mentioned episodes you haven't seen and having to watch a lot. What was the research process like? How many hours a day were you stuck in front of some kind of screen just consuming hours upon hours of old episodes? It was months of every day for, you know, usually two to three hours. You know, like you mentioned, I, you know, I run a website, I'm writing, I'm seeing movies, all that sort of stuff. So during the day I was doing that. And then, you know, my kids come home, dinner and bedtime with the kids. My wife is a teacher. She usually goes to bed pretty early. And so she, when she went to sleep, I would kind of retreat to the screen to Gene and Roger, and I would put in like a second shift and watch, yeah, like two, three, four hours of of Siskel and Ebert every night. Now, you use the word stuck. I would not use the word <laughs> stuck because I, I mean, a sane person might feel stuck. I was in bliss because I had given myself as a huge Siskel and Ebert fan permission, you know, nay, I had to watch these things. And so... It was it was wonderful. I loved it. I really did. I mean, it was it was not a chore. It was uh, it was delightful to watch the show. And like I said, I was fine. You know, yes, I remembered a lot of reviews, and certainly there were a lot of movies that I am very familiar with from this time period. But then there were also movies I had never heard of that that and it's not just oh this is a crappy movie don't see it sorts of movies. These are this is a one of the best films we've seen this year and I'm going I've never heard of this movie. Mm -hmm. And so 
that led to me uh, watching a lot of those movies and adding, which was not part of the original plan for the book, this appendix that's at the back of the book, which are the buried treasures, as as they used to call these sorts of special shows uh, on Siskel and Ebert or on Sneak Previews, where they would recommend movies that had kind of slipped through the cracks. And so that's there's an appendix in my book of 25 of these movies that I either had heard of but hadn't seen or seemed a little off the beaten path or in, my, in some cases I had never even heard of them before finding them through re-watching the show and then would watch them and love them and say this is a book about these two film critics wouldn't it be great if I could get a little film criticism into this book um, or at least film advocacy and so mm-hmm. that's where that that appendix came from and yeah it's 25 movies kind of going for the the old ebert video guide uh vibe and hopefully i captured a little of it and hopefully people find some movies to watch that way looking through that part of the book that's great so now that you're moving into the promotional phase of all this and you're having conversations about the book and about siskel and ebert what's your sense of the awareness of these two outside of you know, film nerd circles, like the ones we tend to hang out in, you know, when you're, I don't know, just doing more, a more general radio interview or something like that. Do you find you have to do a certain amount of re-education? Is there instant recognition? What do you think the landscape is right now? Well, at least for the people who want to talk to me about a book about Siskel and Ebert, generally people are are pretty familiar. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I'm doing, you know, a lot of podcasts and movie-related things. But I have done a few interviews with more, you know, like I did a, this morning, uh, I did like a talk radio segment yeah. for like St. Louis Radio. And the uh, hosts were just like, I just love this show. I loved watching this show. And I think that, sure, for a younger audience... Um, probably there's a lot of folks who are unfamiliar or, you know, they've heard of Siskel and Ebert. They know two thumbs up. They're, they're sort of generally aware, but it, it's not something as much on their radar. But I feel like for people of a certain age, this show was really, it, it, it brings a lot of nostalgia with it. Um, and one of the things that I've really enjoyed talking to people is, you know, like I said, I grew up in suburban New Jersey and went to the movies, which meant going to the multiplex. You know, uh, what's playing at the Freehold Metroplex this weekend? Let's find out, you know. And whatever was there, I would see. But the, the, the pickings could be slim there, you know what I mean? And one of the things that the show did was introduce me to a broader world of movies. Well, people I'm talking to who grow up in all different places have the exact same story. You know, I someone from Billings who grew up in Billings, Montana interviewed me with that story. You know, I spoke to somebody who was from suburban Michigan and said the same thing. And, you know, when I was watching the show as a kid, I, you know, like this was like a secret. I didn't talk about Siskel and Ebert, you know, <laughs> you know, the kids, you know, you would go to school, you'd watch Seinfeld. Then the next day you might quote Seinfeld with the kids at school or the Simpsons. I wasn't going into school going, did you guys see what Gene and Roger said last <laughs> night about, uh, about, uh, you know, Splash? Can you believe they had the temerity to talk about Splash in those terms? I wasn't doing that. You know, like this was like something that I was like my secret, uh, shame or something. It just wasn't cool. It wasn't something that I thought I was alone on this island of Siskel and Ebert obsession and nerdery. And it's been so fun to talk to people outside of the, you know, the film world who say, I just loved this show growing up. This was my show. I used to watch it. And then I'd go to the video store and watch what they told me to watch. 
And um, just getting to see that it had that impact on a lot of people has been really, really fun. I'm sure we'll get a lot more into the book as we dive into our top five. You're familiar with this concept here, the the film spotting top five, Matt Singer? V- vaguely. I think okay. I've, I've contributed to one or two. And uh, again, in the ancient past where there was no no such thing as Riverside or uh, Zoom or any exactly. of these types of places. <laughs> we will remind you that Matt's book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies, will be available wherever you get your books quite soon, October 24th. The top five movies that Siskel and Ebert got wrong is the concept we came up with for this show. And you helped us out in terms of the research here, Matt. You put together a list on Letterboxd of surprising movies that got thumbs down from Siskel, Ebert, or both. Now, you also published a companion list that was surprising movies that got thumbs up from Siskel, Ebert, or both. For our purposes, Josh and I decided to only focus on that first list, the movies that got thumbs down from one or both critics, and and it kind of broke our heart, <laughs> or, or our hearts, as we were younger critics, or maybe even as older critics. You, being the author of the book and the inspiration for this top five, you have carte blanche to move between the list. So I would love to hear anything about your general approach, and I'd love to hear your number five pick, the number five movie that Siskel and Ebert got wrong. Okay, so yes, I decided to go between both lists, because why not? And I also decided I, uh, you you both, or I got my hands on both of your lists beforehand, so I decided to just pick five movies that weren't on either list, so that was a factor. And then I just, I kind of, I just, I picked ones that jumped out at me when I was looking at those lists that I had put together, movies that maybe I have a personal connection to in terms of either loving them and being mortified seeing that they didn't like it, or maybe vice versa. Maybe I went to see it because they gave it thumbs up and uh, then was felt betrayed in that sense <laughs> when I didn't agree with them. So that was sort of my methodology. Some of, as I said, I know your picks and some of yours I think are, like, I don't know that my top five here is what I would consider a definitive list on this subject. Uh, I think it is five very notable examples. I think both of you have some of the movies that I would probably rate above this. I also tried, although we didn't require this, I, I have four of my five are agreements. They are two thumbs up or two thumbs down. I kind of wanted to mostly do that just because I felt like the, those sting even more. When, when it wasn't just a stray voice saying, you know, that this now-acknowledged masterpiece was bad or this now-acknowledged disaster was actually a, uh, a wonderful motion picture. So yeah, I focused I focused on on that. My one my one exception was I decided for my number 5 to do my uh, one example of a movie that um only got one thumbs down, but it was it was uh troubling to me looking over these movies that it did because it's one of my my favorite movies. And that is uh Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall, which mm. did receive a thumbs down from Siskel. Thumbs up from Roger, thumbs down from Siskel. I do have I mean I'll, I'll share my notes here cuz again, I watched all these episodes. I took absurd borderline obscene amounts of notes. So uh, why not use them finally in some way, make it worth it. I've got some, you know, I'm going to be sharing what they had to say about these movies for my movies if Adam and Josh want me to jump in. 
it's very hard to shut me up once we start talking about Siskel and Ebert, as <laughs> people might be able to tell already. But anyway, so about Total Recall, again, Roger did like it. And he appreciated what, one of the things that I love about it, which is that it has this ambiguity at the center of it. Is it all a dream? Is it really happening? Is is the Arnold Schwarzenegger character really experiencing these events, or is it all happening inside his mind, which is about to collapse and be destroyed forever? And so Roger praised all of that. He called it one of the most ambitious and offbeat science fiction films in a long time. He even liked Schwarzenegger, who is, I'm a big fan of Schwarzenegger's and find him to be a very interesting on-screen presence and think that this movie is one of his more interesting films in that regard. Gene was was not as much of a fan. He, he liked the first hour, he said. He liked some of the special effects. He did not like the stuff in the second half. Thought that it was... It it didn't live up to the, the, the setup. And in fact, there's a great exchange in the review of this one where Gene says... Because he's trying to get something out of Roger... Uh, because Roger really liked it, and he was unimpressed. And he says, would you agree? Would you agree that the setup of the picture is more interesting than the payoff? No, I wouldn't. (laughs) Which Which is wonderful. So this one hurts. I will say, maybe not in Gene's defense, but, you know, you asked earlier about things that uh, surprised me, and I don't know if this was a total shock, but one thing that I certainly could not not notice watching hundreds of episodes is that Gene was not a big science fiction fan. He especially was not a huge fan of like bleak science fiction movies, movies about futures where things have gone wrong. Not a dystopia guy. He hated dystopian Hmm. movies. And he would openly say, where are the movies about futures where things work out? Where are the movies about optimistic futures? I think we're going to be okay. Where is that movie? And so any sort of movie that... Now, Total Recall isn't the bleakest film in the world, but, you know, it's like any movie that was about the future that didn't have that message, it doesn't mean he couldn't like it, but he was always kind of on guard about them. And so that could have perhaps played a role here. But yeah, that's my uh, my number five, Total Recall, one of, my, one of my favorite movies, and it only got one thumb up. I'm on your side too, Matt. I do like Total Recall. And, and actually it is. I am not that huge of a fan of Schwarzenegger, certainly nowhere near how you are but what? i think this is an interesting connecting now josh we <laughs> i just, said I know, good day, sir. shocking shocking i know but i do think this movie is one of the most interesting uses of him so yeah if people haven't ever seen total recall check that one out uh, before i get to my number five i'm just gonna be one of those people who is going to share their story of siskel niebert the show with you matt and what it meant to me um you said it was a bit of a secret pleasure for you It was actually a family ritual in our house. It was Saturday nights, and I want to say WTTW was the PBS. uh, Is that track? That's Chicago, yes. Yes, that's where they started, yep. And this was part of a block of programming on Saturday nights. I can remember we would come in, you know, in the summers from, from playing outside, even if the weather was great, because we had to gather to watch sneak previews, Julia Child, The Cooking Show, this old house, a home renovation program. <laughs> and I think, now my memory might be blurring here, perhaps this was a Sunday night program, but in my mind, the Muppet show was melded mm. into this. So I might have that one wrong, but I do distinctly remember this chunk of time we'd all as a whole family, my younger sisters too, watch Siskel and Ebert or sneak previews. And it was really bizarre watching these clips in prep for this show because we always ordered mango's pizza 
there in Crestwood, Illinois, suburban Chicago. <laughs> Don't believe it's around anymore. When I heard Gene and Roger bickering, I could taste the oregano <laughs> immediately. <laughs> it came back because I, I've not had that pizza since, you know, I left for college and moved away from Crestwood. So this was a lot of fun putting this list together and having that flood of memories come back. I don't think I bragged about this either at school on Monday, to be clear. I wasn't going around at recess recapping the episodes, right. but at least in our house, it was a good time. All right. So looking at your list, uh, the one that stood out to me, which is a two thumbs down. I tried to prioritize those. I think three of my five are those. Was Brazil. Terry Gilliam's 1985 dystopian fantasia. Maybe this is why Gene didn't mm-hmm, like it, to your mm-hmm. point, Matt. Uh, Jonathan Price here is this Orwellian bureaucrat. My name's Larry. Sam Larry. Oh, yes. And a new boy from next door. <laughs> My name's Lime. Harvey Lime. Welcome to expediting. Uh, I say, look, would you mind if I borrowed your computer console? What? Yes, I'll let you have it back in ten minutes. Do you want to take my console into your office? Ebert called it confused and unsatisfying, chaotic. He wanted fewer elaborate sets. Hard to imagine in a Terry Gilliam <laughs> movie. But Siskel, for his point, just said it has one idea and one idea only. Something about, you know, that we're going to be overwhelmed by technology. Again, not not very sunny. It has really one idea and one idea only, which is we are being overwhelmed by technology. Mm-hmm. Hardly a fresh idea. It beats it to death. Mm-hmm. Beautifully beats it to death. That's what I want to say. It's a beautiful well, you know, beating to death you, of one idea. Now, they're not entirely wrong. I mean, they're like a lot of Gilliam. This thing is unhinged narratively. Brazil is. There is a lot going on in this movie. But for me... It's that chaotic imagination that I do admire. It is the production design. It is the sets, the costumes. And if you do have only one idea, and I think Brazil, you could argue, has more than one idea if you go back and look closely at it. But even if you have only one idea, if you dress it up like this, I'm probably going to go for it. So that one was sad for me to see that neither of them liked Brazil. I don't have a great story to tell. I feel so left out now. I was the classic Gen X kid whose parents just pretty much left him alone to do whatever he wanted. And so I was always up just late at night in my bedroom with my TV on and 1030 at night or whenever it came on, on whatever night it came on, I don't even know. I just knew that every weekend it would come on. And I I tuned in religiously back in the day when you know we had three or four channels at the most. That's that's as far as I can go, unfortunately. But in terms of approaching my list, I started with Matt's list. You know, Josh, I love any top five where I can invoke math. We got 50 Wait, titles. did you use a spreadsheet for this? Almost. almost. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Didn't go quite that far. 50 titles. I immediately kicked out seven because there are seven I haven't seen. And would you believe that one of those seven is Matt Singer's number five total recall? <laughs> What? I've still never seen Total oh Recall or the remake. And I watched all those Schwarzenegger movies as a kid. I can't well, explain it. It just it just still hasn't happened. Okay. How dare gotta, you even we gotta invoke move on. the remake as like I, I haven't even seen the remake? No, who cares about the remake? You gotta see the original. What Josh is probably happening likes here? Josh probably oh. likes the remake better. Oh. You know, no, I can. actually haven't seen the remake, so can't oh, say. Man. What is happening here? I then excluded six more picks. Because they're in the film spotting pantheon. And these are six, as you would imagine, being in the film spotting pantheon, these are six really big 
titles. Now, I'm only going to mention five of them here because my understanding is that Josh may have cheated and used one of these picks. But here are the five that Josh didn't include. Ebert giving a thumbs down to Blue Velvet. Siskel giving a thumbs down to Apocalypse Now. Siskel giving a thumbs down to The Big Lebowski and to Out of Sight and to Unforgiven. I mean, that's that's your top five right there. You could just stop with those. And you've got five, in my mind, of the greatest films potentially ever made. Yeah, I feel that way about Out of Sight and The Big Lebowski. And they're not eligible for this list. That's 13 movies I kicked out. There was there was a 14th, Josh. There was one movie on the list I kicked out because they were both right. Do you want to guess which movie that is? They were both right in not liking. That's right. It's got to be one I love. <laughs> it's Brazil. <laughs> You're number five. All right. Not a fan. Not a fan. All right. Confused and unsatisfying. Sounds about right based on my, mm. my lone viewing of Brazil. So they got that one correct. I then kicked out three other titles that I knew were going to make your list. And all three of them are movies I like, Josh, but wouldn't be in my top five or top ten. That left me with 33 movies to consider. And then I really wanted to complicate things. And I thought about titles that I've just always been aware of historically that Roger didn't like based on his books and that have always bugged me a little bit. So I was like, well, do I include these? Like, what about Fight Club? Ebert only gave two stars to that. And Matt pointed out, well, that was after Gene's death. So they never talked about it, right? Pre-Siskel and Ebert, A Clockwork Orange. Ebert only giving that two stars. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Ebert only gave one star. That came out in 82, the year that at the movies began. Maybe they were in transition. Don't know if they talked about that one or not. I couldn't find this one online, but Ebert only gave one and a half stars to The Usual Suspects. And then there's another title that that is going to make my list that they did both talk about, but isn't among Matt Singer's 50. So all total, I ended up with 34 different films to consider. And here's where I ended up. I'm glad we all approached it in a unique way. I don't have any movies that only Siskel gave a thumbs down to. And I think that that reflects a certain allegiance I have always felt towards Roger Ebert. I was always more disappointed when my opinion didn't coincide with his. And Josh, I'm a little bit different than you. Matt's in New Jersey. I'm I'm closer. I'm in Iowa, but I'm not reading the Chicago Tribune or the Chicago Sun-Times or aware of their their history or tradition or anything like that. No attachment there. But the more I read, the more I got into cinema later in life, and I I mean here as a as a late teen and as I'm going into college, the more I started to convince myself that Siskel was maybe more of a movie reviewer and Ebert was a film critic. My perception was that there was just more of an intellectual heft to Ebert, which I don't think many would begrudge me for, even if it's probably not totally fair. And actually, I want to use that to ask you a quick question, Matt, before I jump into my list. And and that is, what were your feelings towards Siskel? It sounds like you may be favored Ebert as well because you were also really into those books, those movie companions that he put out. Did your feelings toward Siskel evolve at all? Did they need to as you wrote the book? Um, my, you know, like I'm obviously a huge Roger Ebert fan, but honestly, like I really became so interested in him really after the end of Siskel and Ebert, because Mm. that's really when, like, for example, you could start reading 
like, and this was like when I was in college, suddenly his weekly reviews in the Sun-Times were live every Friday. And you could just, you could read his new reviews every single week. And, and, you know, I was also reading his books. So that was the point where I really became a huge, like specifically Roger Ebert fan. Growing up on the show, I don't know that I necessarily had a, a favorite and honestly, I might have preferred Gene just because, I don't know, he had this assertive energy on the show. For sure. Um, this confidence. I mean, and when you talk to people about him, that's who he was in real life. He was a very confident person. He he carried himself that way on and off camera. He had supreme confidence in himself. You know, he got his job as the film critic at the Tribune because the 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 current film critic in 1969 was leaving for a fellowship at Harvard and he decided I could I could do this. He found out that the plan was to kind of just have fill-ins, you know, random people kind of pitch in here and there and he said, "No, I I could do this. I'm going to do this." He was not a trained film critic. He loved movies, but he wasn't he didn't go to school to study film or anything. He was just a, a reporter at the at the Tribune at the time. And he hadn't even been there that long actually. And he wrote a letter to the editor saying this is a bad idea. You should give me the job, and here's why. And he slipped the the letter under the editor's door or whatever, assuming that was going to be the end of it. And and the next day he came in, and there was a meeting, and he got the job. And that was that was how he approached things. Yeah. And I do think, as a kid, I I uh, that appealed to me, if only because I'm the least confident person in, in life, no matter what I'm doing. And so that I found that very appealing. Uh, rewatching the show. I mean, do I I probably tend to agree more with Roger, but that doesn't mean that I don't think Gene is good on the show. And and mm-hmm. part of what I love about the show is that they are different and they have different tastes. And if they were if it was two Roger Eberts, the show would not work and I would not have written this book because it, the show would not have lasted. What made the show work was that they were different and they had different tastes and they approached criticism differently. And watching a lot of the episodes, I really really came to enjoy Gene's reviews more and really respect not just th- that side of it, but, you know, there's a period where they would, they did a lot of interviews on the show, which I didn't really remember. They would, he, they would go to junkets and he would interview movie stars, directors. They would show that on the show. These are the most uh, probing, go for it, Pull no punches junket interviews in the history of junkets, you know, where the typical junket interview is, so what was it like working with Martin Mm -hmm. Scorsese? You know, he went to these junkets and he would say to Madonna, what's going on with your career? Why why are all your movies so bad? Or, you know, I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) There's that confidence. Yeah. There's the confidence. He would say to Eddie Murphy, why don't you work with better directors? Don't you think that would make your wouldn't that help your career if you worked with better directors? And sometimes they show the people he's talking to and they're looking around the room like what is happening? They're so bewildered that someone is actually taking this seriously and not doing a puff piece. So he brings that energy to his reviews too. And so yeah. that's you know that's what I like about Gene is that he's not soft pedaling anything ever for any reason. He is going to tell you what he thinks. He's not going to sugarcoat it. And if you disagree, he doesn't care. And, um, you know, there's value to that in a, in a film critic, whether you do agree with his taste or not. One of my most vivid memories of those two, 
actually comes from one of those many talk show appearances that they always did. And you're right, that really was the dynamic. And Gene certainly seemed like the more confident and assertive one. And I wonder if I've even just made this up in my mind. I can't tell you exactly what show it was or when it took place, but maybe you came across this in your research. I remember they were on one of those late night shows and maybe the host asked about the conflict between them or, or what it is, what drives it, something like that. And I just remember Ebert saying something like, well, you know, I really enjoy doing the show and Gene's great and all, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm a one-stop shop for film criticism. He basically said, I don't really know why anyone feels like they need the other guy. And the other guy's sitting right next to him, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it was quiet. <laughs> you know, Gene didn't say anything. And I actually, that was the first time I ever felt sorry for Gene. I need to see if I can find, find that clip. But maybe that also somehow influenced my sense of, of Roger as a critic. Well, I also think, you know, and, and I would probably feel similarly to you, Adam, in terms of, you know, whose criticism I've come to appreciate more, but we sort of had no, no choice. I mean, even being the suburban Chicago kid who we got the Tribune, you know, in our house, but at the school library every Friday, I went and read the Sun-Times for Roger Ebert's reviews. So I would get both of those. And over time, I do remember Siskel's reviews getting shorter in the paper. I think as he was devoting more time to the show or to doing interviews that like you talked about, Matt, you know, those sorts of things. And, you know, just kind of thinking, well, what's ha what's happening here? Like, where is the being someone who always appreciated the writing aspect as well beyond the show? I'm like, what's going on here? Eventually, they were just little blurb reviews. I think around the time Dave Kerr joined the Tribune and became the chief critic. And then you have Ebert's prodigious writing, especially once the internet came around. And there is no way you can possibly, it's not even a fair comparison mm -hmm. in terms of the output of criticism. So it's, you know, it, it's a question that I think most people probably would fall on the Ebert side. But I do have to say that when Life Itself came out, uh, and this is the Steve James documentary uh, based on Roger Ebert's autobiography, I came away with a whole new respect for Siskel as particularly specifically as a critic and as an intellectual. I do think that was one of the generous things about that documentary is it it helped me reclaim some of that misperception I think I had based just solely on the output mm -hmm. of the work. We got to keep going through the top five, I know. But in terms of that, what you're saying about his reviews getting shorter, that's actually covered in the book, like why he essentially kind of lost his job as the critic at the Tribune. There's a whole kind of behind the scenes story about that um, involving when they jumped from Tribune to Disney. And essentially he was punished for doing that by uh, kind of getting a demotion. Essentially, he lost his main film critic gig. And, and that's why, yeah, Dave Kerr kind of became the lead critic at the Tribune. And he was, he had a different title, like movie columnist or something like that. He was still yeah. working there. But um, basically, again, we could be here all night telling all these stories. But yes, there's a lot in the book about in, in that period about what happened there. So yeah, you're, you're not you're remembering quite rightly that yes, his, uh, his print output did kind of decrease, but I don't I don't know that it necessarily was his choice. It was sort of he had kind of been pushed mm -hmm. out of that main yeah. film critic uh, chair. And then the misperception, you know, from 
a kid reading these is, oh, he's not taking it as seriously, right? Mm, is the unfortunate right. kind of that's how it looks from the outside looking in. So, which right. is which is as I said, something that I think life itself reclaims. What, Josh? You weren't also reading Robert Feeder's media column in the Times. <laughs> Sadly, I was Adam, but I maybe maybe didn't. You missed uh, catch that issue of, of Crane's that. Chicago Business yes, that covered right. all of this in depth. Crane's, I did skip. Yeah, study hall didn't go quite that long. Okay, back to my top five. My number five movie that Siskel and Eva got wrong. This is one that just Roger got wrong. It's The Elephant Man from 1980. Siskel leads this one off on the show, and he recommends it primarily for John Hurt's performance as. John Merrick. And Ebert has two big issues. The first being that he still feels like there's something dirty about the film ever being made, that it's tapping into our twisted curiosity, its sensationalism, the sideshow still goes on. I think he says something like that. 100 years after Merrick's death, the sideshow still goes on. To some degree, this movie hopes to succeed at the box office because of our perhaps unworthy curiosity about what the Elephant Man really looks like. All right, but let's not blame the film for it. It's the film company's fault. What's your other objection? Well, okay, I have another objection. That is, what is this relationship between Merrick and the Doctor? We're told in this movie we're invited to feel that Merrick was very courageous, very noble. Mm. Why? Well, maybe one reason is, despite his handicaps, he learned to function in society. Maybe that's a reason. In the movie, you don't get that. The movie starts out with him snuffling. He can't talk. He can't say anything. Later on, the 23rd Psalm, Romeo and Juliet. Where did he learn to speak like this? How was he brought along? I would have been fascinated by scenes showing the doctor-patient relationship, these two people learning to communicate. But no, instead of that, we get a lot of sensationalism. I'll be totally honest. I actually don't really know what his second point even is. Something about wanting more scenes where Anthony Hopkins' doctor character is actually teaching Merrick stuff and and Merrick is maybe making some choice to overcome his sad fate versus all of us just thinking he's so brave and courageous for being the victim and having exceptionally awful luck. It is a little clearer in his written review where he can stretch out a little bit more, he can expound, but for me, not not much. And just a little bit of coincidence spotting here Josh, as we both caught up with this film recently and talked about it at the Refocus Film Festival, Ebert says the Elephant Man could have bluntly dealt with the degree of Merrick's inability to relate to ordinary society, as in Werner Herzog's Casper Hauser. Instead, it makes him noble and celebrates his nobility. Hmm. He definitely doesn't get the real Lynchian touches like the scene at the beginning where Merrick's mother appears to be trampled by an elephant or something. He really doesn't like the whole star child bit at the end of the film. He calls the former inexcusable and the latter equally idiotic. And, and ultimately, his take is he just derides the elephant man as shallow. He says that the film's philosophy is nothing more than one, wow, the elephant man sure looked hideous, and two, gosh, isn't it wonderful how he kept on in spite of everything. And I guess I just have to say that neither of those two thoughts have ever been a part of my experience with The Elephant Man. I think a lot about the human condition watching that film, including our capacity for unbelievable cruelty and compassion and our yearning for connection. I, I've i never felt like just kind of patting John Merrick on the back for giving life the old college try, which is the way I think Roger kind of makes it sound. And, you know, Josh, I looked at your review of this because I saw in Letterboxd that you liked it, but but gave it just just three and a half stars. And even if it's, a bit obvious, as you put it, when Anthony Hopkins' doctor wonders whether he's a good man or a bad man, 
at least the movie wants us to consider that question and not just succumb to the sideshow. And I think the good-bad-man dichotomy also becomes more complicated when you think about what, for me, is the most heartbreaking line in the film, Merrick saying, I've tried so hard to be good, when he's talking about how he wishes his mother could see him. So it's it's not, you know, gosh, isn't it wonderful how he kept on in spite of everything? It's, gosh, isn't it incredible how... He clung to notions of goodness and lived it in his actions in spite of everything. Now, again, neither of them like Lost Highway. I don't really blame them for that one, as big of a David Lynch fan as I am. But as I noted earlier, Ebert also didn't go for Blue Velvet, which is one of my all-time favorite films. So maybe I shouldn't be shocked that he didn't like those Lynchian touches in The Elephant Man. And didn't really go for it overall. But I think he's wrong on this one, Matt Singer. Well, well, look, I just want to say, you know, we were, I, I already talked about, you know, Gene kind of had this predisposition to dislike sci-fi. Roger, for, you know, we've already complimented it a few times. Lynch in general was kind of a blind spot for him. You know, you mentioned Blue Velvet and Lost Highway. He also didn't like Wild at Heart. Like That's he, right. he, you know, most, he gave mostly thumbs down reviews to David Lynch through his career. He did like... Uh, Straight Story and Mulholland Drive, but otherwise, most of the other ones, he was not a fan. And so, yeah, I mean, again, that but that's part of being a critic. I mean, every critic has filmmakers they like and dislike and genres that they prefer and don't prefer. But I think it is very fair to say that Roger Ebert was never a huge fan of, of David Lynch. Mm-hmm. And this is a perfect example of it. And all of the, yes, of all the reasons you laid out, it is... But it's just wild to hear these things being said about, again, about David Lynch, you know, exclamation point. The sort of filmmaker you would think that these guys would have, you know, just been totally in the tank for right from the beginning and always. That was not the case. I remember getting that 1991 Roger Ebert movie companion and turning to the Blue Velvet (laughs) review. Just just knowing I was going to see validation of the experience I just recently had with that film and how it changed my life and my view of cinema only to see that he gave it two stars or maybe two and a half or something. Oh, I think like it's that. even, I think it's less than that. I think it, it might, I think it might be one or one and a half. Yes. Yikes. Well, I've, I've repressed that part <laughs> of the memory. Matt, your number four movie that Siskel and Ebert got wrong. Okay. So I, uh, here is one that they gave two thumbs up. This is a example of, of, of one where I feel like they got it wrong in that direction. It is a comedy. Allegedly, it's a comedy anyway. Um, it is a movie that I have seen. Now, I, haven't, I have not revisited this in a while, but I, this is I saw gonna be it. It's going to be one I love. I just know it. You think so? Oh, let's. Well, now it's even getting. Now it's getting suspenseful. <laughs> this is like a good episode of of uh, Siskel and Ebert. You don't know what's going to happen. Maybe a fight's going to break out. Um, but I, I haven't revisited it recently. But about ten years ago, I did a a piece for the Dissolve R.I.P. the late lamented wonderful film website where I had to watch every movie by a film a filmmaker. And film actor by the name of Sylvester Stallone. And that man has made some wonderful films, some of my favorite movies. Retract. I retract. (laughs) We're good. We're good. (laughs) And he's made some some very bad movies. And and some of the movies get to be really, really bad. And I thought this one was amongst the worst. Not the worst, but amongst the worst. And it is a motion picture by the name of Oscar. And what I what what surprised me, besides the fact that they gave it two thumbs up, which they did was looking at their review, you see that they they both agree that the movie starts off very unfunny. 
so far so good, at least from my perspective. Then they, 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 then they start talking about how Gene says it starts disastrously in the first 20 minutes, but then rebounds and saves itself. You know, you put your finger right on it. This movie started slowly. I am oh. not a fan of comedies about gangsters set in the early 30s with all of the running boards on the cars and the fedora hats and everything. This stuff has been done so often. I'm sitting there thinking, boy, this is really a dog. You know, and then I laughed. And then... I laughed again. Then the Fanucci brothers came That's in, and I, I really started laughing. And then when Tim Curry comes in as that Dr. Poole, the elocution coach, I was laughing yeah. and laughing. And then at the end of the movie, I sat there and I said, I don't know how this movie did it, but it did just what you said it did. It turned itself around. It's a good movie. It's a funny movie. It really yeah. is. And I just want to know... What version of this movie did they watch that gets better after 20 minutes? Because I've seen, I thought it was the only cut of this movie. And let me tell you, it does not get better after 20 minutes. It is brutal from start to finish. You know, they were they were praising it as this throwback to kind of screwball comedies of the 1930s. Your daughter's not your daughter. And the cash that used to be the jewels is now your underwear. Now you got it. I got it. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not sure if a scene like that works out of context, but within the film, that stuff is very funny. Oscar is a funny throwback to the tightly written, lickety-split comedies of the 30s, and it is very funny at times. It's a pleasure to encounter a script and a storyline that has been really well thought out. This is based on a French play. Again, I, I, I volunteered to write a piece about Sylvester Stallone's career. That I didn't force myself to watch Oscar. I wanted to write it because I like Stallone as a, uh, as a, I think he's a, you know, like a Schwarzenegger type, an interesting, and if nothing else, an interesting figure to consider. Uh, but, but I don't know if he's all that good at, at broad screwball comedy. And I don't know that I, if I, given the resources, the script, the funds, would cast him as the lead of my throwback screwball comedy. And not to sp I'm not going to spoil my number three, but my number three is a comedy that they gave two thumbs down to. And it's sort of, when you juxtapose these two things, I recognize all, all films are subjective. Comedy is especially subjective. Especially so. Yes, of course. <laughs> but to, to just, it, this is not a movie where I go, okay, it's all right. I guess like, what, I didn't like it that much, but it was okay. This is a movie where you would have to, I'd have to be paid a, a fine amount of money to revisit this film. Uh, I have no interest in ever rewatching it. So the fact that this one got two thumbs up and some of the films we've mentioned got thumbs down or two thumbs down or the movies we're going to discuss from, from critics I so deeply admire and respect, it really boggles my mind. And we were this close, Josh, to including Oscar in our next Stallone marathon. Yeah. I, mean, I, would, advi I would advise against that. I would strongly... <laughs> So strongly bad. advise against it. So bad I haven't seen it, so cannot <laughs> cannot weigh in. But yeah, that's that's the catch too, Matt, when you mention we're talking about ones they love that you think are awful next to ones they didn't like that you think are great. That's what you often hear from people. I'm sure it's happened to all of us on Letterboxd, right? Is yeah. You say you don't like something, then it'll be like, tends to be a Marvel movie. Oh, yeah, this is the guy who gave blank stars to a totally different film from a completely different genre and filmmaker. Like, you how could do these not two be, even exist? You could not be better setting up my next pick, Josh. <laughs> Get yours in. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so my number four, Beverly Hills Cop, two thumbs down. 
and Ebert really harsh and angry. Watching some of these clips, I had forgotten uh, how worked up he would get about movies he didn't like. You touched on this with The Elephant Man, Adam, with some of the, the words he chose even to use. Here, he called this overplayed, embarrassing, unbelievable. Um, mainly, it looks like does not have a great script was another phrase. So that was a big problem. But also, he found it to be too broad, a waste of Murphy. He wanted something more nuanced. Beverly Hills Cop has a great basic idea for a movie. I mean, when you think about the idea of Eddie mm -hmm. Murphy in Beverly Hills, you can think of dozens of potentially funny situations. I know we can. Uh, we could, but the guys who wrote this script couldn't. This movie does not have a great script. Instead of a finely tuned social satire in which the movie would really look at the nuances of how a black Detroit cop might be treated in Beverly Hills, the movie goes for broad, obvious strokes, like dressing Murphy in a t-shirt and putting him in that embarrassing scene in the hotel lobby with all of that, I'm from Rolling Stone, you're discriminating. That is so overplayed, it doesn't, it's not funny as it would have been if he had been able to kind of subtly zap them a little bit with their attitudes. Plays like a TV sitcom. As for Siskel, he called out director Martin Brest, saying the action is bad. Uh, the word he uses is that it sputters. It's curious to me, though, Ebert's critique, wanting this more pointed and serious social message movie from, you know, an Eddie Murphy action film. And what's especially curious is this speaks, I think, to watching a movie in its moment and revisiting it years later, which is what we did, Adam. This was part of our 8 from 84 series not too long ago. Yeah, it was uh, bonus that's content, when... just to be clear. I think we I think we only talked about it for film spotting family members in a bonus. Okay, okay. Yeah. Could be. And then, you know, when we did look at it, a movie I loved as a kid, right? Like yeah, as I talked about an 11 and 12 Watched year old incessantly for, for Murphy, right? Absolutely for Murphy. Now I'm looking at it as an adult and realizing there's actually a lot of social critique here. I mean, there's the broadness, but especially in Murphy's performance, you have Axel Foley going to Beverly Hills and basically setting a series of comic traps for racists to fall into. I thought, it was funny then. I think it's funny and subversive now. But maybe at the time, it just registered as as broad to someone like uh, someone like Ebert. I wondered if maybe he just didn't get some of those early Eddie Murphy movies, but he gave Forty Eight Hours three and a half stars. So something something about Beverly Hills Cop definitely didn't work for him. Josh, my number four film is one. From an episode that, in doing a little bit of digging, you'll have to tell me if this is true or not, Matt, it might be a little bit of an infamous Siskel and Ebert episode. And the reason why is that scenario that you were just describing, Josh, the one where usually it's a it's a reader or a listener or a watcher who tries to point out your hypocrisy. But of course, one of them was going to point that out here in this instance, June 17th, 1987. And the infamy doesn't come from their review of Spaceballs or their back and forth about Steve Martin and Daryl Hannah in Roxanne, but because of their showdown over the first film they talk about, which is Full Metal Jacket, and a little bit because of another film they talk about, Benji the Hunted. <laughs> Ebert leads this one off. It's Full Metal Jacket. He does not waste any time revealing how he feels about the new Kubrick. There is irony in this movie and satire and comedy, but there is also way too much routine war footage. The opening scenes in basic training recycle material we've seen before 
all except for a brilliant performance by Vincent D'Onofrio as a pudgy weakling who the Marines turn into a psychopath. That was him we saw looking up at the camera in that earlier scene. And there is more recycling at the end of the film, which is devoted to that firefight in the ruins of a burning city, a sequence that was shot on a giant set and looks like it and reminded me more of World War II war movies than of the special war in Vietnam. We expect an original masterpiece from Stanley Kubrick every time out, and this time I'm afraid, let's see, not a bad movie, but it's not original and it's not a masterpiece. Oh, I think it's very original and very close to being a masterpiece. Siskel <laughs> counters sharply and correctly that we've never actually seen basic training like this on screen or war like this on screen. Ebert naturally doesn't back down saying Gene's wrong. It's just full of a bunch of cliche so scenes. This whole sequence is taken right out of absolutely routine grade B Republic Rod, World War II war movies I of never, guys running out there to try to I save their never, buddy and somebody I else have shooting never, at them. I have never felt a kill in a movie quite like that. Ever, oh, in any I, I, film. Not in Apocalypse Now, not no, in The Deer no, Hunter. Not like not, that. Not, in not like that. Uh, well, then in that case, you're going to love The Late Show because they have kills like that every night in black and white starring John Wayne starting they don't about have, midnight. They, uh, but they don't have movies like this film for oh, Metal I, I disagree. Okay. They then finally move on. I think it's about a four and a half minute segment. They move on, but they come back to it at the end of the show after Ebert's home video pick. His home video pick is Dr. Strangelove, and Siskel's home video pick is Paths of Glory. And Ebert uses that occasion to point out that he's sure Full Metal Jacket won't have the legacy 30 years later that either of those films have. And, of course, he might be right about that, but that doesn't diminish my appreciation for Full Metal Jacket at all. It certainly doesn't diminish Gene Siskel's appreciation either. He knows that, and and agrees with him. And he thinks that he thinks that Ebert's setting the bar too high. The kicker, though, after some more of this clashing, is this part. As good. And as this is a show where you give Benji the Hunter a positive review and not... Now, Gene, film. that's totally unfair because you realize that these reviews are relative. Benji the Hunter is not one-third the film, one-tenth the film that the Kubrick film is, but you know that the same thing happens, that you review films within context. Mm -hmm. So it's not fair for you to compare those two reviews. And you know it, and you should be ashamed of yourself. No, I'm not. Now let's take another look Even at though I know, as a critic, I've been on the other side of this, and I've <laughs> made the same argument that Ebert makes, I remember watching this episode, or at least I remember watching it later, and I remember even at that time loving Full Metal Jacket, even though I wasn't a huge cinephile yet, and I couldn't believe that Ebert didn't like this film, but he liked Benji the Hunted. <laughs> and and so I loved when Siskel called him out for it. And Ebert, the way he says, now, Gene, that's totally unfair. And, and then when it gets really good, you should be ashamed of yourself. He tells Siskel he should be ashamed of himself. And what does Gene say? No, I'm not. No. <laughs> He's got to throw in the no, I'm not. They, they both, these, these intellectual men, these very smart men about a lot of things, including cinema, at that moment devolve into children saying, you're this, no, I'm not, yes, you are. Which, of course, has never happened to us ever, Josh, on this no, show. No. It's, well, that's it's only amazing. because we haven't reviewed Benji the Hunted. I mean, that would oh, bring it out Just in wait. Us. Four stars from you, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Full Metal Jacket's my number four. And I think uh, a good pick, not only because I do strongly disagree with Roger Ebert on its overall quality, but because I love that back and forth so much. <laughs>
It is a classic uh, review. What's sort of striking to me about that debate, the, the Full Metal Jacket part, I mean, yes, that is a very, uh, to, to what you were saying, it is a, it is a definitely a, like, kind of a legendary episode of the show because of this, this combo. Um, listening to you, like, describe back Roger's arguments, I'm realizing that if, if you had taken the names out and I didn't know this episode... I would assume that was Gene's argument because yeah. Gene often would – that was often a Gene tactic, I would say, a debating tactic or a, or a reviewing tactic, let's say, is he would often compare whatever movie was up for debate to the great works of cinema of that genre. You know, mm. every thriller had to be compared to Psycho or to a Hitchcock masterpiece. Every – you know, every romantic comedy would, would have to be compared to, like, a bringing up baby or whatever it is. You know, every movie was held up to that lofty standard. And a lot of times Roger would say, okay, well, it's not the greatest masterpiece of world <laughs> cinema. It's a pretty good version of this sort of movie. Why are you forcing this movie to be an, a masterpiece? That's an impossible standard to reach. And Gene would say, well, it's a it's a good standard to try. Why shouldn't films try to be the best possible yeah. movie? Shouldn't Roll all reversal. movies... Right, shouldn't all <laughs> movies aspire... And when you're saying these things, I'm realizing that like the roles have reversed here in a, in a totally. surprising way, where Ebert is saying, it's not a bad movie, but it's not original, and it's not a masterpiece. I mean, doesn't that mean it's a good movie if it's sure. not, you know, like that? I mean, to me, that sounds like at least a mild thumbs up. Yeah, but it's uh, not Doctor anyway. Strangelove. Okay. Yeah, well, exactly. As Gene says, few films are. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe no film is, according to right. Gene Siskel. Right. We are at our number three picks, Matt Singer. Okay, my number three. Now, so the previous one was a comedy that they liked for reasons unbeknownst to me. In this case, I have a comedy they gave two thumbs down to that I really love and um, I have rewatched in the last couple of years and thought it held up very well and was a favorite of mine at the time. It is Gremlins 2, The New Batch. I really enjoyed the first Gremlins movie. It was funny and also had some meanness to it that seemed to be funny as well. But this new picture is just too frantic for my taste. It starts out with a cute, good little gremlin and then all heart and emotion in the film disappear. The Donald Trump jokes and the Ted Turner jokes start to wear thin. And once you've seen one gremlin create a mess, it isn't really a whole lot funnier to see a hundred gremlins doing the same thing. I completely agree with you. And additionally, it seems to me that the gremlins in the first movie were better made. I hate to say they didn't get it to, to, to guys of this caliber, but you know, you do look at what they re how they reviewed it Gene says, it's a sequel that suffers because it is so repetitive, not so much with the original film, but with itself. The gremlins run wild here and run wild some more and then some more. And once you've seen one gremlin create a mess, it isn't a whole lot funnier than seeing a hundred gremlins doing the same thing. And they, bo they both liked the first gremlins. They were disappointed by this one. Roger complains that the first one was better made. They, the gremlins were more interesting as creations. In this movie, they look like dolls. In the first movie, I really had the illusion that they were genuine little creatures instead of props. And then they, they end the review by complaining that, if you remember it, it has like this sort of animated opening. Kind of like looks like a Looney Tunes cartoon is about to start. And and, and Bugs and Daffy, I believe, are involved. And then it they, they sort of... it's There's a couple of quick jokes and they call it off and they start the movie. And, and they're like, why would you tease us with having a Looney Tunes cartoon but then not show us? Why frustrate us in this way? And it's like, well, but this is 
the whole movie is the cartoon. It's a live action cartoon. That's the whole point of the film is that the Joe Dante made a, a live action Looney Tune featuring the Gremlins. That's the whole thing. And they, 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 either they didn't get that or they just didn't really appreciate that. And, you know, I, I do think that, again, one of the, one of the, uh, let's say trends or things that I would notice when I was watching so many of the episodes back to back to back is they were, especially by this point, they were getting very wary about special effects movies. They yes. always, they, you know, it was like any movie with a lot of special effects was like guilty until proven innocent. Prove to us that you, that you have earned the right to make a, a movie with lots of money and lots of special effects and that somehow a movie with special effects couldn't have something to say, couldn't be interesting, couldn't be as funny. It just, you know, it's they certainly gave thumbs up to a lot of big budget movies, but there's also a lot of them that they're, again, wary of, skeptical about. And I think this is, a, maybe this is perhaps an example of, of that, of going, well, it's a sequel, it's Gremlins, it's got a lot of Gremlins, uh, where's the cartoon? Two thumbs down. And uh, I, 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 I've, oh, I just think it's a hilarious movie. It has incredible energy, and it really is like a live-action cartoon in a really hysterical, inventive, clever uh, way. I know, I know. You think I'm insane? Absolutely not. If you were, we couldn't sue you. Oh, my God. You see? This is a complete failure of management. They're eating the genetic stuff. And it's certainly better a better sort of throwback to old school gags than Oscar, for goodness sake. <laughs> you know, that's one of the seven for me that I listed as having never seen, but with an asterisk, Matt, because I loved the first Gremlin so much as a kid when it came out that I feel like I had to have seen the sequel and maybe even saw it in the movie theater in my one screen cinema back in Grinnell, Iowa, but I just don't remember. I don't remember anything about it. So I've still marked it as a, as a not seen. What about you, Josh? Yeah, I probably saw it at the time, but not since. And that special effects bugaboo you mentioned, Matt, was one I noticed watching some of the clips and some of these reviews. It comes up in my number three poltergeist in earlier film than gremlins, the new batch. We're talking 1982 here, but they do tiptoe in this conversation toward a potentially interesting discussion about the purpose and the use of special effects. Of course, this being a half hour TV show, it's they don't really have a lot of time to get into it, unfortunately. I, I really think that this is, and I think when you say it's good special effects, I'm going to accuse you of something, which is being intimidated by special effects. Anybody can do these special effects now, and this doesn't have a convincing story at all. Just now. because anyone can do it doesn't mean they aren't done well. The, but, the whole point is the next movie. Why don't you get to the next one? It's got better special effects. This is one I should note Siskel didn't like. Ebert did. So Siskel said it wasn't scary. He, he didn't appreciate the quote mumbo jumbo about spectral life, the afterlife. <laughs> and then just landed on, I never understood it. Um, Roger did acknowledge it was silly, but said it was a good summer thriller with good special effects. And that's where this mini debate begins for me i mean i like poltergeist even more than ebert way more this is a top 10 horror film for me uh in my book if you're not i wrote about it as a ghost story exploring our fear of guilt i think there's social commentary as well going on here and it's interesting just looking at these films 
it offers the thing that Ebert wanted more from in Beverly Hills Cop, I feel like. You know, Poltergeist has a lot to say about television as this evil presence capable of destroying the American family. So not a two thumbs down here. For the record, Ebert did like it, but but Siskel, yeah, wasn't up for that mumbo jumbo. Yeah, I don't I don't think Siskel is the right audience for that one. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say he wasn't probably at Woodstock or feeling like he was missing Woodstock, like Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson getting high in their room at night, you know, and then later selling out for the American dream. That it feels more like an Ebert movie to me. Right. I mean Gene and and Gene in this review did also I mean they specifically talk about special effects. You know, oh yeah, it's got good special effects, but I think he specifically like accuses Roger of being intimidated by good special effects and says anybody can do these special effects and this doesn't have a convincing story at all. Now, I love Poltergeist too. I'm not this is a more general thing to say is just to think about, you know, and I did this as I was watching it. You know, you you're you think about when they became film critics, which is the yes. late 60s. Yeah. And when they were sort of just coming into their own, which was the early 70s, this in, the new Hollywood era, this incredible era of experimentation. And, the you know, the Hollywood movies look a lot different for the most part in the early 1970s than they do in the early 1980s. And so I feel like some of that skepticism, that wariness, I think comes from that, is that they were seeing this transformation. And on a whole, maybe it wasn't for the better. But I do think that sometimes they that very fair feeling led to them maybe missing some specific movies that used special effects to really great ends, like a poltergeist, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah, not a lot of effects in, in New Hollywood film, for sure. So I get that. <laughs> okay, my number three movie that Siskel and Eber got wrong is another one that, yes, just Roger got wrong. And it's the one that wasn't on your list of 50, Matt, but definitely eligible for this list reviewed on the show and obviously disliked by at least one of them. And this is another one that broke my heart. I don't know that I saw them talk about it live. I I read about it in the movie companion that Roger published and it's dead poet society where you have Roger bemoaning how Robin Williams basically just devolves into Robin Williams, not John Keating, the teacher he veers into his nightclub act as (laughs) As Roger puts it, which we've seen a lot from Robin Williams in different roles, and he singles out the scene, both on the show and in his written review, where he's teaching the class and he starts doing Marlon Brando and he starts doing John Wayne, doing Shakespeare, those kind of imitations that really do. Roger's not wrong. They feel a lot like Robin Williams just riffing. Williams gives a generally good performance, but I could have done without this scene, which comes uncomfortably close to the comedian's nightclub persona. Now, many of you have seen Shakespeare done very much like this. Oh, Titus, bring your friend hither. <laughs> but if any of you have seen Mr. Marlon Brando, no, well, Shakespeare can be different. France, Romans, countrymen, Lamiris. <laughs> you can also imagine maybe John Wayne is Macbeth going, well, is this a dagger I see before me? And the problem is it suddenly looks like Robin Williams there instead of like Mr. Keating, the English teacher from 1959. Dead Poet Society is one more recycled version of the ancient movie formula about the war between rebellious young people and hidebound authoritarian adults and the one good teacher who's on their side. Here he is again, Matt, talking about how unoriginal 
the film is. This is a teacher character we've seen a million times before in movies and a theme we've seen done to death. The, the I think he puts it the war between rebellious young people and authoritarian adults. He says the the surprises or the supposed surprises are predictable then because we've seen it before in these movies. We know what's going to happen to these free spirits and they're going to get crushed. So the ending then isn't tragic, but just a plot requirement. He's got it all figured out. Doesn't care for it. Siskel likes Dead Poets Society more, doesn't love it, gives it a thumbs up. In the trib, he gave it three stars out of four. So we don't get a big fight. It doesn't turn into Full Metal Jacket and Benji the Hunted, unfortunately. And the big reason for Siskel is he, too, didn't really like the ending, thought it was too formulaic and predictable. What they don't get to in this segment, this one's about four and a half. I think Full Metal Jacket's closer to seven, actually. What they don't get to in the... TV show, but they do get to, or Roger does in his review, is the criticism that when I read it really, really left me reeling. And I know I touched on this when we did a Sacred Cow on Dead Poets Society a few years back. This would have been for me, when I'm reading this, it would have been right around 1992, right after that movie Companion came out. And I had probably actually seen Dead Poets Society just sometime in the previous year or two. I, I don't recall seeing it in theaters in 1989. I saw it later on home video and that 91 movie companion mentioned it a few times. The first book of film criticism I ever bought. I'm reading, I'm reading that review and Ebert's a little rougher in print. Here's his, his opening graph. He says, it is of course inevitable that the brilliant teacher will eventually be fired from the school. And when his students stood on their desk to protest his dismissal, I was so moved. I wanted to throw up (laughs) right after that. He says this, here's the, here's the part that, that really hurt me. Peter Weir's film makes much noise about poetry, and there are brief quotations from Tennyson, Herrick, Whitman, and even Vaca Lindsay, as well as a brave excursion into prose that takes us as far as Thoreau's Walden. None of these writers are studied, however, in a spirit that would lend respect to their language. They're simply plundered for slogans to exhort the students toward more personal freedom. At the end of a great teacher's course in poetry, the students would love poetry. At the end of this teacher's semester, all they really love is the teacher. So I'm reading this at the time, the same time I'm taking an AP lit class in high school that would change the trajectory of my life, that would send me off to college the next year to become an English major. Because of all the great poets and authors I was inspired by in that class. And what inspired me to take that class? Yeah, Dead Poet Society. So if the movie's appreciation of these great poets is fraudulent, according to Roger Ebert, then... Was my appreciation of them also fraudulent? Fruit of the poison tree, so to speak. Calling you out, man. He really Mm. was. I really struggled with it then. I struggle with it now. And that's because, I'll say again, Ebert isn't really wrong. There isn't any serious study of these poets in the movie. At the end, they absolutely love Mr. Keating more than they love any of the poetry. And it probably did feel totally formulaic with a predictable ending. To him, Roger Ebert reviewing this movie was the age I am now as we're recording this show. But look, I I didn't have any sense then. I don't have any idea when I'm watching this or reading his review of who Miss Jean Brody is. I don't know who Professor Kingsfield is when I'm watching Dead Poets Society, nor have I at that time studied in depth Tennyson or Herrick or Whitman. So Dead Poets Society is inspiring me and it's expanding my world which is also true for the high school kids in the movie. For Ebert, it's diminishing. 
not expanding. And I get that, and I can see it through that prism now and see it through the, the lens that Ebert was viewing it through at the age I am now. But even though I hear what he's saying, I think he's completely wrong. <laughs> and he, he, he studied English all through college and mm-hmm. grad school and everything as well. So, yeah. You know, you did ask me, you texted me beforehand, like, wh- wh- why wasn't this movie on your list? And the reason is, I don't really love Dead Poets Society all that much either. I'm sorry, yeah, Adam. You didn't That's, have to share that. I, I just figured I would just chime Ouch. in and just say it's never, it's not, not one where I, I mean, I probably like it more than Roger, but I definitely like it less than you do. So yeah. there you go. That's why it it's, wasn't on that it's list. It's not fashionable. It seems like it's not fashionable anymore, even though it still seems fashionable to really like Peter Weir. And mm-hmm. I do like Peter Weir in a lot of his films. Maybe. Yes. Dead Poet Society now feels a little cheesy, but when we these talked about it a come, few years these ago, things come back around, it still though. worked. It still yeah. worked for me then. It mostly still worked for you, Josh. You gave it a positive review, as I recall. Oh, yeah. And I think it's interesting. Probably had a similar experience to you. It romanticizes learning. And yes. I remember seeing it at the time. That was its appeal for me mm-hmm. as well. In addition to, I've always had a curiosity about performers known as comedic performers taking a more dramatic turn. And I remember just being like, wow, look at what Robin Williams can do. But it held up for me. At the same time, I don't know that Ebert is wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I, I told you. I, I, I think get that, it. you know, if, if, you're, if you're taking the literature as seriously as he does, I can completely understand that response. More movies that Siskel and Ebert got wrong coming up. And we will note here, if you want to see all the picks we've talked about and even watch the discussions from Siskel and Ebert at the movies, we will link to those on our top five page. Just go to filmspotting.net slash lists. Well, 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 our war hero has arrived. You made a good choice coming back here. Those days are the finest, wealthiest, and most beautiful people on God's earth. They outsmarted everybody. They have the say. Who gets the oil? A clip there from Martin Scorsese's latest Killers of the Flower Moon. And Josh, I was all set to ask you about the expectations around this film, the hype, how sky high it seems to be. But I know now that your answer would be a little skewed or at least influenced by the fact that unlike me, you've actually seen Killers of the Flower Moon, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Caught it last week. I won't say anything more. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation, but expectations, this is what Scorsese does, right? I mean, it seems like very few of his movies are not met with high expectations. You have Casino. Think about Casino. Reunited with De Niro and Pesci. This was five years after Goodfellas. Um, The first time he had Leonardo DiCaprio in a film, 2002's Gangs of New York, and then The Departed with Leo and Matt Damon. Obviously, we were excited about that. The Irishman, most recently, right? Seen as like this career capper in terms of his gangster movies. And now we do have Killers, which is, this this is what I will say about it. A little bit of a gangster movie, just a little bit. Okay. All three hours and 26 minutes of Killers of the Flower Moon does come out in wide release this weekend. We'll have a review on next week's show. Extremely excited for that. Also next week, poll results. The current deeply flawed film spotting poll asks you to name your favorite film from the last 20 years that exceeds 180 minutes. We have some good options, including two Scorsese films in there, The Wolf of Wall Street, which I know Josh will not be voting for, and The Irishman, which I know you at least strongly considered. Not 
all the good options, apparently, because Other is in third place. So people are writing in some different titles. That's rare. Fascinating. Can't wait to hear the feedback on that one. You can vote in that poll and leave some feedback over at filmspotting.net. We wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of actress Piper Laurie, 91 years old, three-time Oscar nominee, Josh, lead actress in 61's The Hustler, opposite Paul Newman, which you just saw fairly recently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So glad I did, too. Supporting actress in 1986's Children of a Lesser God. I'd forgotten this, that she played the mother of Marley Matlin's character. And how can we forget? We'll never forget another supporting nom for her best known performance as Margaret White in Carrie. We will we will never think of moms on screen the same way after seeing Margaret White and Carrie. Yeah, and that's the one that everyone's mind goes to. But as I said, I'm so glad just earlier this year I finally caught up with The Hustler because Piper Laurie was the revelation. I mean, of course, I knew Paul Newman was going to be just luminescent in the, in the film. Uh, but Laurie playing this, you know, an, an alcoholic aspiring writer who's in similarly dire straits as Newman's character, she is toe-to-toe with him i'm telling you in in all of these scenes she has a softness uh i should say she has a vulnerability but not a softness i think Mm -hmm. is what is so unique about her here and an intelligence about seeing more than newman's character does where they're headed where their story is headed so yeah i mean i'm assuming a lot of people are like me piper laurie you think of carrie I get it. But if for some reason you've not seen her in The Hustler, you got to go there next. Well said. Very good. Do recommend both of those films. But if I'm being totally honest, when I think of Piper Laurie, the fact is I saw her first in Twin Peaks mm-hmm. as Catherine Martell. She ran the Packard Sawmill along with her sister, Joan Chen's Josie Packard. So that was my introduction to the often tough as nails Piper Laurie on screen in David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Well, and even beyond those, her credits go all the way back to 1950. She has multiple starring roles opposite Tony Curtis, Rock Hudson, Donald O'Connor, as well as others. If you look over her history, you find that she twice left Hollywood for theater work in New York. So between 1957 and 1961, That's when she was offered the role in Hustler. And then between 61 and 76, when she took the role in Carrie, she did work consistently in film and TV after that until just recently. Her last credit is 2018's White Boy Rick. All right, Adam, we've been doing a lot of book talk on this show with with Matt's new Opposable Thumbs. I'm still doing the round similarly for Fear Not, a Christian appreciation of horror at this point. Pretty much just have one more event as you can expect i'm fitting most of these in before halloween this is going to be the only chicago event i have as well so what is essentially halloween weekend this year october 28th saturday night at 8 p.m i will be at facets here introducing a screening of talk to me this is the recent australian possession horror film I'm going to talk about it at the start. We'll watch it. And then Facets has refurbished their lounge, their cafe at the front. So there are drinks there, snacks. Afterwards, we'll talk about the film in general and how it might fit into the book. If you want to get a ticket for that, you can get it at facets.org. We'll also link to that in the show notes. 
Quick note about what's coming up on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. They've got a new pairing, Kitty Green's The Royal Hotel. This is her follow-up to The Assistant, also starring Julia Garner. I can't wait to see this one. Wanted to catch it before it came out, and it's just, I just haven't had the time. They're pairing it, Adam, with a movie. I don't know if I've said this before in a Next Picture Show pairing. A movie I've never heard of, 1971's. Are you with me? I'm with you. Okay, good. I don't feel so stupid because I mentioned this on social today. And of course, a couple of people are like, you've never seen Wake and Fright? Like, no, sorry. Never heard of it. Ted Kotcheff, Josh? (laughs) Not a Ted Kotcheff expert, I'm afraid. So this is all to the good. Love learning about more. And Sam has left us a note here. If you want to do that too, Wake and Fright is currently streaming on AMC Plus as well as Shudder. We'd love to always point you to your local library. If your local library doesn't have it, maybe try Interlibrary Loan. Next picture show, they look at cinema's present via its past. Your hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. You can get episodes every Tuesday wherever you find your podcasts. All right, time now for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting prize. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. They hate us, you know. The humans, they'll stop at nothing. My mommy doesn't hate me. Because I'm special and unique. Because there's never been anyone like me before, ever. Mommy loves Martin because he is real, and when I am real, Mommy's going to read to me and tuck me in my bed and sing to me and listen to what I say, and she will cuddle with me and tell me every day, a hundred times a day, that she loves me. She loves what you do for her. As my customers love what it is I do for them. That was Jude Law and Haley Joel Osment in 2001's AI Artificial Intelligence, written by Ian Watson and Steven Spielberg, also directed by Spielberg. That massacre was part of episode 939, where we reviewed The Creator. So, why that scene from AI? Rob in Gaithersburg, Maryland says, like the creator, it's about, well, AI. It's specifically an outsider, artificial intelligence trying to find its place in an oppressive world. I'm also going to go out on a limb here and say it's Spielberg's best. There's a melancholy to much of his 21st century work, but working with Kubrick's ice-cold source material pushes Spielberg as close to cynicism as he's ever gone without ever losing his unshakable sense of childish wonder, only curdling it here into something sour and perverse. It's not his most perfect movie, but it is maybe his boldest and his most singular. Oh, Rob, you're speaking my language. I mean, I I can't be that bold right now. It's number three, but there may be a day where it inches up higher. We also heard from Michael Roche in New York, New York. Adam really had to work on his Jude law, but of course I recognize this exchange between David and Gigolo Joe from the Spielberg Kubrick film. AI. The tie in is with the creator, both films featuring artificially intelligent robot children. And for a real stretch of a tie-in, Law also played Dr. Watson in two Sherlock Holmes films, while two of the new Wes Anderson shorts star Benedict Cumberbatch, whose breakthrough performance was as Holmes in the BBC series Sherlock. Well done, Michael. Albert Malafrant says, AI but with Gigolo Joe played by the fawn in Pan's Labyrinth? <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm supposed to take that as praise or criticism. Josh. Always, always take it as a compliment. Here's Dave Allen from Bonnie Lake, Washington. So happy to hear you give some love to AI artificial intelligence. My family hated this movie, 
but it resonated with me as a Kubrick vision made approachable by Spielberg's sensibilities. It also holds a special place for me as I use the film in my final essay of my first film theory class. The question I posed in my essay was, what would Andre Bazan think of photorealistic CGI effects? The short version is, I don't think Andre would be on board. Man, it has been too many years than I'd like to admit since I've read Andre Bazan. So I'm, I'm not going to weigh in on your prompt there, Dave, but thank you for that. This last one is from Leslie Basho. She's in Waverly, Nova Scotia. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm not reading it necessarily because it, it talks explicitly about or has an interesting connection to AI. It's more just, Josh, that we get such nice emails like this. People just reflecting on the relationship they have with the show and their rituals. And every time I read them, I star them and I say, I really have to go back and, and reply and let people like Leslie know that we are reading these. I read every single one of them and then it never happens. I star them and I get too busy and I have yet to really get caught up. I think that starred email list has to be about 7,000 deep now. Oh, and I'm not, geez. I'm not even joking. Gave me okay. nightmares. Yeah, so instead, I'm going to read Leslie's email here on the show as part of Massacre Theater. She says, I almost forgot about this Massacre Theater. When I listen to Film Spotting, it is on Friday when it drops. This is also the day of drudgery when the weekly chores get knocked off. The most notable of them is the cat box cleaning and scrubbing, a soul-crushing task at best. Let's just leave it at that. This is why I avoid cats. However, I was in the midst of this noble undertaking on October 6th when I identified the scene from AI, Artificial Intelligence, where Jude Law's Gigolo Joe was speaking with Haley Joel Osment's David. I have not seen this movie since it came out on VHS. I'm good at remembering the scene, bad at connections, but you reviewed the film The Creator, which deals with an AI child in a bigger and dangerous world. While Osmond's Pinocchio-like character suffers, it does not have the potential to end the world, whereas the child AI in The Creator has bigger weight in relation to others. All this slipped my mind while wearing a mask and rubber gloves. Luckily, I thought of it today. I look forward to each episode of Film Spotting and have to thank you both for pushing my film appreciation. I may not always agree with your recommendations, but I'm always ready to try. Thank you and keep doing what you do. I will be listening with a yucky litter box in hand. I mean, I, I think that's perfect for the context of this show, looking at <laughs> Siskel and Ebert's criticisms over the years and just just reminding ourselves, Adam, when we're going on and on with our own thoughtful criticism, mm -hmm. somebody's listening while cleaning out a litter box. And and they're shaking their head going, no, they're, they're wrong they about that. They got it wrong. They, they got, got it wrong. wrong. Yeah. Why don't you reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner? Our winner is Ben Kohler. Who, you might be interested to know, is a card-carrying, trivia-spotting mafia member. Yes, he is. In East Brunswick, New Jersey. Do not mess with Ben. No, longtime listener who somehow, I'm pretty sure, has never won Massacre Theater, but he was randomly chosen. Congratulations, Ben. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own Film Spotting t-shirt or tote bag or a trial membership in the Film Spotting family. <laughs> Now you understand the scene. You're not sure if you still love Keith, but you're offering yourself to him in order to save the planet. Okay, Jif, right up here. Now we're starting here. Uh-huh. And up okay. and roll set. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, and we welcome back our special guest, the author of Opposable Thumbs, out October 24th, the definitive book about Siskel and Ebert. We have Matt Singer back with us, and we know that Matt has, on occasion like to put on some funny voices. Not that not that you're going to have 
an exceptionally funny voice here, but we're going to we're going to see what you do with this scene and it's one that I don't think Matt we probably need to give any of our listeners any clues about. Let's just say it it ties in with a subject on this week's show. I mean, I, I, I would I would say if if people have seen this movie, they I'm I'm just looking at my script here. Of course, and I have a few notes I'd like to go over with with the director at some <laughs> sure. point. Maybe we could <laughs> do me. that. Yeah, um, I just know, like to give to I just like to out. give my feedback. I just like to have uh-huh. you know I like to do, before I do a scene, I really like to discuss it at length. You know, at least just yeah. have a you know rehearsal maybe and but yes, I think people once they if they've seen this movie, they will recognize recognize this scene. Okay, so you Josh, have been you're... workshopping this, right, Matt? I have been. Yes, I have Oscar been. Theater. I've been. <laughs> yes, taking it to taking open mic seriously. nights. The good, yes, good. around the city. Good Hi guys, I just, I just want to. This is a little piece I'm working on. Uh, thank you so much. Be sure <laughs> oh, to this, tip your wait staff. That sort of this thing. This will be yeah. a treat. So, Josh, you are going to play the other role, and I'm going to assume the role I've always been meant to play—the director, even though. That does mean Matt's going to ask me a bunch of questions I don't want to answer. So maybe I will I will give up that role of director. We're going to try to knock it out, though. Here, I'm going to give you, Josh, the action as you started off. Are you ready? Let's do it. And action. You don't get to come in here and pretend you can write, direct, and act in your own propaganda piece without coming through me first. Uh-huh. So break a leg. Yeah. Wow. You know, what has to happen in a person's life for them to become a critic anyway? What are you writing? Another review? Huh? Is it any good? Is it? Is it bad? Did you even see this? Let me read it. I will call the police. No, you won't call the police. Let's read. Callow. Callow's a label. Uh, Lackluster. That's just a label. Margin. Marginalia. Are you kidding me? Sounds like you need penicillin to clear that up. That's a label, too. These are just all labels. You just label everything. That's so lazy. You just... You're a lazy You're a... You want to know what this is? Do you even know what this is? You don't. You know why? Because you can't see this thing if you don't know how to label it. You mistake all those little noises in your head for true knowledge. Are you finished? No, I'm not. And, <laughs> and scene. Wow. Oh, you got man. a professional rendering there, Josh. I mean, I, I don't know how I'm going to be able to go on and offer any criticism. I've been completely That's undone right. as a critic. Yes. He eviscerated you. Oh. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 30th. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. Our next film is called Beetlejuice, and to its credit, it's one of the most ambitious fantasy, horror, and comedy films ever made. But here's a case where a movie just tries too hard for its own good, overwhelming us with special effects to the point it becomes almost obnoxious. Beetlejuice is the story... We get back into our top five movies that Siskel and Ebert got wrong with that bit from their 1988 review of Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. That's Siskel there, but for the record, Ebert didn't go for Beetlejuice either, and even more incredibly, at least for me, neither of them liked Michael Keaton. I should note, Matt, looking at your list, this speaks to our conversation about Lynch a little bit. It seems like Siskel and Ebert were conflicted about Tim Burton in general. Uh, Batman got a thumbs down from Ebert. Edward Scissorhands got two thumbs two down. Two thumbs down. Oh, That's that one. Right. 
that one is a personally hurtful one for me. But going back to Beetlejuice, here's Siskel. He does acknowledge you can't fault the art direction and ambition. Talking there about Beetlejuice and also references Pee-wee's Big Adventure. So Burton's previous film. He says it's too much for its own good, however, overwhelming us with special effects to the point that it almost becomes obnoxious. There's that special effects concern. Perhaps most interestingly, he thinks Michael Keaton detracted from the fascinating interaction between Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin, because that's who everyone came to see in a movie titled Beetlejuice. More curiously, here's Ebert calls it a Ghostbusters clone. He also liked Davis and Baldwin and wanted more of them. Back to the special effects, they're well done, he says, but so what? There's no comic energy behind it. And then regarding Keaton as Beetlejuice, it's not funny. It's just, there's that guy again. Let's get rid of him. <laughs> All right, let's get down to Beetlejuice. You're right. I got a card around here somewhere. Here, here. Who do I have to kill? Here, hold that for me, would you? Whoa! There you go. You don't have to kill anybody. Ah, possession. Good. Learn to throw your voice. Fool your friends. Fun and party. A little of this guy goes a long, long way. And the back half of this movie is absolutely stuffed with his antics. I get that to a sense. You know, I mean, Beetlejuice is a grading character. It's built into what the character is supposed to be. And there's a lot of Beetlejuice in the movie called Beetlejuice. So if you're not going to get on board with that, I could see how it might be excruciating. I mean, it is not particularly funny for me. I don't know that I laughed a lot watching Michael Keaton entirely, but I do think it is one of the wilder screen performances we have that's out there. Just its brazenness, originality, and the energy, to go back to the energy idea that that Keaton brings to that character. So I'm on record as a Tim Burton defender, far beyond my own good sense. So I'm no one to trust in this arena. Um, and of course, I'm going to disagree with them here on his second feature. It's it's the other thing that I think disappoints me is this is the one that does really begin to cement Burton's aesthetic. And there's not really any recognition of that either here. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right that they were they were Tim Burton skeptics. That was another like a like a David Lynch. That was another filmmaker. They were very unsure about and they were not in the tank for and yeah we've already talked about the fact that special effects you know it's like special effects colon are they really so special you know that's sort of the vibe from some of their reviews of this sort of movie and you know calling this movie a ghostbusters clone uh, you know i think no one's ever suggested that I, right. I mean, elsewhere I, in the world. I mean, I guess the fact that there, you know, there's ghosts. That's about it. Like this is true. But, but I think that tells you how they were framing it in their minds walking into the to the theater. Is that that? Oh, it's a special effects movie with a lot of ghosts. And, comedy, comedy as well. And a right. Comedy. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. You can see it. And there's some, you know, there's some element of trying to like get rid of these ghosts or at least Beetlejuice. Sure, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, to me, that when you look at Beetlejuice. And I revisited it not that long ago and thought it did hold up really, really well. So it's not just me saying, oh, I like this movie as a kid. I think it absolutely is a is a really effective comedy, yes, but also just like, you know, it's the, the, the effects here are, you know, to your point, Josh, like really building this amazing world, this imaginative, supernatural, um, you know, 
mythology that we get to explore in this movie. All of the the weird rules of death and going into the that that after that afterlife waiting room is just one of my favorite places to visit in a movie because it's you know mm-hmm. it's so hellish <laughs> in the most banal way. Right. And right. those scenes really are hilariously funny. Yeah. And yeah, everyone is interesting looking. Everyone's got this crazy makeup and weird prosthetics. And then you throw in Michael Keaton's live wire performance and you just have a really crowd-pleasing movie. But uh, in this case, this crowd, not pleased. No go. Two thumbs down. (laughs) (laughs) Matt Singer, your number two movie that Siskel and Eber got wrong could be just one of them. It is not. It is both. In this case, my last uh, two picks are both, uh, both agreements. In this case, I went back to the list of movies that they got wrong giving two thumbs up. And this is one where I really remember watching this review and being excited. Two thumbs up for a movie that was a sequel to a movie I loved at the time. Okay, well, the sequel is great. Are they going to be able to pull off the... the, I mean, the original was great. Are they going to be able to pull off the sequel? I hope so. Oh, Siskel and Ebert liked it. And then I went to the theater to see... Speed 2 Cruise Control. Speed 2 Cruise Control was directed by Jan de Bont, the same man who directed the original Speed, and once again, he shows a lot of energy and originality in his special effects. It isn't a great action movie, but it's a very competent one, and it gets the job done. I liked it. I liked it, too. I was a little nervous there with the way you started out. I thought you were going to knock this picture. A film that was given two thumbs up. Uh, And we look at some of the movies on this list so far that have not gotten you know, uh, two thumbs up or even one thumb up. And we, Matt, that's not fair. (laughs) You should be ashamed. I'm not ashamed. I am not ashamed because (laughs) no, I'm not because in this case, I mean, we've, we've, we've just talked about it with Beetlejuice, you know, their wariness about special effects. I mean, here is a big budget action movie where it's like, it's speed on a boat guys. It's like, why? And, and it doesn't even have Keanu Reeves who, I mean, it's funny because I think at the time, you know, the way they talk about uh, Speed 2, which, I mean, they don't describe it as a masterpiece, but they did give it two thumbs up. But I don't think they explicitly say this in their review, but there's almost this implication like we have replaced Keanu Reeves with Jason Patrick. And so therefore this movie is better now because it has in their minds a better actor in it um, than the original Mm. Speed. Which I, you know, at that time, I think Keanu Reeves had this, you know, he was not considered. Now he has this kind of vaunted status. Everyone yeah. kind of loves no, him. Fair. And I think at that time, he was kind of seen as a very different sort of beautiful, but maybe empty presence. I'm not saying this. I think that that's what a lot of people thought, maybe, and especially uh, perhaps of Gene and Roger's ilk. And they certainly didn't mind him not being in this movie. And in fact, they also were like almost, well, at least Gene was sort of happy that, or at least tolerated the fact that Sandra Bullock, who was in the original, obviously, and that was her real star-making role, she comes back in this one and and he says she's relegated to more of a, or I guess Roger is saying she was relegated to a, you know, a, a role of a sidekick and a cheerleader. 
And basically, Gina's like, well, that's fine. She was Maybe she's be overexposed if she was in too much of this movie. You know, like, it's okay that... J he really likes Jason Patrick. He's excited that the star of this film is Jason Patrick. Talk about Jason Patrick for a second. You say he steals the scenes, but he steals them because he's a superior actor. He was in a wonderful film called After Dark, My Sweet, about seven years ago. I don't know. It's speed on a on a on a on like a giant cruise ship. It moves slowly. The whole thing is a, it's it's a cruise ship, and it's you know you know it's just it's a it's a pale imitation of the original, mm -hmm. which is such a great action movie. And so, you know, of all the movies that we have already discussed and will discuss that they gave thumbs down or two thumbs down to. The, the genre pictures that really work. It, it really boggles my mind that one that they agreed, yes, two thumbs up, which I remember it was on the poster, it was on the VHS box, two thumbs up. It was everywhere. They, they loved putting that out there with this movie. Speed 2, Cruise <laughs> Control. It, it was indeed a two thumbs up film. Yeah. And again, like I remember going to the theater after loving Speed, seeing the review and being like, okay, I guess they pulled it off. Mm -hmm. I just remembered this, you know, no pun intended, the waves of disappointment like crashing over me as I was sitting there watching this going, what were they talking about? What were they thinking? What were they thinking? And to this day, I know I haven't revisited it too recently, but I have seen it at least once or twice more. And I, I, I still do not know what they saw in Speed 2 colon Cruise Control. So Matt, in a in a panic while you're talking, I'm trying to find out what I made of Speed Two Cruise Control. Because to Adam's <laughs> to Adam's point, very likely I wouldn't have been shocked if I loved it. Oh, no, but no, neither would I. Thankfully, thankfully, <laughs> had had to go to my print archives for this one. Oh. Uh, the Regional News, <laughs> 1997. Whew. I said it's simply a 90 minute excuse for one dull stunt. So I'm with okay. you, Matt Singer. Whew. Gene and I'm Roger got relieved. this one so wrong. Let the record be corrected. <laughs> yeah. When Matt Matt told me he was going to have a pick like this on the show, but he didn't say what the title was. And I said, oh, I call that pulling a Larson when you misguidedly <laughs> prefer the sequel to the original that everyone else adores. But in this I case, you're, might, you're on the right I, side. I, there, I thought I it might happen there's here. one of those coming up uh, on one of your lists. I mean, there is a full-blown uh, uh, pulling pulling a Larson by Ooh. one or perhaps both of these gentlemen. So okay, we'll we see. will see. We'll see what happens. My All number right. two movie that, in this case, again, Roger Ebert got wrong is a comedy. And Matt, you've already said it, right? Yes, all criticism is inherently subjective. And nothing is more subjective than what makes you laugh or doesn't make you laugh in this case. I get that. I still can't let Ebert's thumbs down on what I think is maybe the greatest comedy ever made slide. And that movie is the Coen brothers raising Arizona. Siskel gets it. He recommends it despite some slow patches as he puts it. Ebert isn't having it though, especially following the last Coen Brothers effort, they both prefer, he especially preferred Blood Simple. It sounded to me like you liked it a lot more than yeah. just giving it a recommendation. I, I didn't. I didn't think it worked for me, and I'm the guy who loved Blood Simple. In this right. film, it seemed to me, first of all, the dialogue is too large. People are always talking about, if you look through yon window, uh, none of the dialogue. Well, I knew they were, they were trying to be funny. Thank you. I, but I didn't think they were funny, mm -hmm. to tell you the truth. And I also felt that the characters were so weirdly drawn that instead of being funny, they were just behavioral exhibit and, and in print he has this line which i think just kind of out of context is one of the weirdest lines of roger ebert film criticism ever 
He says, generally speaking, it's best to have your characters speak in strong but unaffected English, especially when your story is set in the present. Otherwise, they'll end up distracting the hell out of everybody. <laughs> what is he talking about? He, he thinks the characters are just too weirdly drawn. A pretty normal complaint, I suppose, for those who complain about Coen Brothers movies. And remember, with Full Metal Jacket, they were kind of weighing in on the, the legacy of this movie and whether or not it'll stand the test of time and Gene will still be saying it's good in 30 years or whatever. Well, Siskel brings up their split on a recent film at the time that's David Byrne's True Stories. So I'll come back to you in five years. We'll look at True Stories and we'll look at this film. We'll see which one we like the best. I think I know the answer. I'm pretty sure to his dying day, Roger still defended and preferred true stories. But let's be honest, the jury came back on that debate a long time ago. We have a winner. And another Ebert line from his review that kind of kills me. I mean, granted, Siskel did say it had some slow patches, but Roger writes, and what Raising Arizona needs more than anything else is more velocity. This is a film that has a main character who's inspired by the Roadrunner, and it needs more <laughs> velocity. I, I'm not sure I follow, but I'm going to read this last bit from Roger's written review. He says, the movie cannot decide if it exists in the real world of trailer parks and 7-Elevens and Pampers. It's actually Huggies. I'm pretty sure he says, take whatever cash you got in these Huggies. Or in a fantasy world of characters from another dimension. It cannot decide if it is about real people or comic exaggerations. It moves so uneasily from one level of reality to another that finally we're just baffled. Well, you apparently were baffled, Roger. Take out a couple words or rearrange a couple words from those sentences, and you've actually got the perfect distillation of what makes Raising Arizona a comedic masterpiece and why the Cone Brothers are considered geniuses. But Roger was baffled. And let's also point out that one of those movies in the Pantheon I mentioned, The Big Lebowski, Roger did give a thumbs up to his partner, gave a thumbs down. So they've got a little bit of a a checkered history when it comes to the Coens. Well, I mean, what I would say is they definitely, they always preferred the darker Coen Brothers movies to the comedies. Yes, I think that's, uh, again, another sort of, you know, a taste thing or a bias thing or however you want to put it. But yeah, Blood Simple, Fargo, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, they always, they loved all of those. They always enjoyed when they were doing that sort of stuff. Raising Arizona, Big Lebowski, I think Hudsucker Proxy, two thumbs down as well. Mm-hmm. It, you know, that that mode was not their favorite. And, you know, you know when you compare um, Nicolas Cajun's movie to The Roadrunner, I mean, that kind of reminds me of what I was saying about Gremlins 2, which was like a live action cartoon. Maybe that just, well, for whatever reason, that was not to their taste. It was not on no. their tempo. You know what I mean? Like, or at least on yeah. Rogers in this case. I don't know. And, and again, like, that's just the way it is. Some some people have certain things that rub them the wrong way or they just don't connect with. And perhaps we have found another one of those things with, with these guys. Mm-hmm. That brings us to our number one picks. The number one movies Siskel and Ebert got wrong. I do finally have a movie they both got wrong. A tooth thumb downer. What say you, Josh? All right. Mine's just Ebert. Missed out on this one. A little film called Die Hard. Maybe one of the best action films of all time. Ebert did acknowledge Alan Rickman. Very interesting character is the villain here. The most interesting character, he said. But man, did Roger get stuck on, here's the word, I think you mentioned it with 
possibly Elephant Man, Adam, idiotic. You can also see there, I think, one of the big weaknesses of the movie, and that's the idiotic behavior of the Los Angeles Police Department. There was one character in this movie, a deputy chief, whose actions are so stupid and so unmotivated and wrongheaded that finally he just brings the movie to a stop every time he opens his mouth. Bad writing. He always says the wrong thing. He understands nothing. <laughs> you know, again, because that's what we all remember about Die Hard. Uh, he also complained about the bad writing and the loopholes. Uh, Siskel, who was in favor, uh, you know, saw it as this mano a mano between Rickman and Willis, who he agreed were both very good. He liked the single location setting. This is probably the best argument between them among my picks. Um, Ebert gets really really worked up on this one. And Siskel tries to keep his cool amidst the barrage. Well, what about all the cops on the ground? What about this deputy? But they stay away from them. They stay away. They stay away from him. Willis is brought down to the ground. Yes. Which is a miracle considering that all of the elevator shafts have been dynamited. I followed him Uh, all the way through. uh, The cop is standing there saying, we're going to bill you for all the damage you've caused. There are always grown at things. There are idiotic cops in the Dirty Harry movies, too, when you laugh at them. Come on, because Harry's smarter. This is not an idiotic. This is not an idiotic cop. This is idiotic writing to make a cop like this. When it would have been better if he just pushed the action forward instead of constantly being wrongheaded. One supporting character, two very interesting lead characters. So when you look at Ebert's take, this is another bugaboo that can be a really tough one. I know I've fallen into this loopholes and logic thing, right, with various films, and it's almost a mood thing. It's like there are some times where I'll go into a movie and I don't care if the logic makes sense. Is it more about the experience or the general story or something even more aesthetic? If I can get carried away, Brazil probably falls into this category, right? If I can get carried away by these other elements, I'm not trying to make sure that everything that happens in this movie could really happen. There are other times where I cannot see past that. So I get it. Something like this, I think Ebert mentions at least twice in their three to four minute review about how, how could these elevators work? They're throwing so many explosions down them. Like, why would they function anymore? Not something I thought about once, any of the many times I watched Die Hard. So I think if you give that stuff too much weight, you can miss out on some of the more important stuff about a film as Ebert did here with Die Hard. Die Hard, the movie that I mentioned earlier, I wasn't going to say the title of because I knew it was on your list, but in the film spotting pantheon. So I'm with you, talked about it, gave it the sacred cow treatment a few years ago, discovered that it's a pretty rich film in addition to being one of the best action movies ever made. So yeah, unfortunately, Roger missed it on Die Hard. And in terms of uh, pulling pulling a Larson, Die Hard 2... Two thumbs up. I agree with you that the movie, from beginning to end, for my money, is way superior to the original Die Hard, which... Oh, I like that, too, uh, but this is... It's good, but it's fun, you know. This is really something special. I I sat there aghast with pleasure. Mm -hmm. Is is that possible? No, but uh, anyway, I know what you're trying to say. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs up on Die Hard. (laughs) All right, let me me see if I joined them (laughs) in this Larson pulling. Was that Die Hard... It was just Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2, a.k.a. Die Harder in some yeah. in some territories. Mm, I'm going to have to get back to you and do a little more research in okay. the archives. Okay, Matt, okay. give us your number one while we wait. Okay, so my number one, another comedy, a two-thumbs-down comedy, and um, another um, example of a presence 
uh, a very popular presence, uh, not a director or a filmmaker, but specifically an, an actor, a comedian, who they were resistant of for a, a while, a long time. And that gentleman's name is Steve Martin. And the film is The Jerk, yeah. which they gave two thumbs down to. And uh, this is not a, a mixed two thumbs down. This is not like a two and a half star two thumbs down. This is a this is a this is a real emphatic. Now now I should say it wasn't technically two thumbs down. This is from sneak preview. So this is when they were giving yeses and nos. So it's technically two nos. But uh, nonetheless, they were really not fans of this movie. And Roger is the one leading the review, and he says. Steve Martin has become one of the biggest comedians of the 1970s, but without my support, I just don't think he's funny. Still, I had my hopes for Martin's movie debut. I thought maybe the movie wouldn't depend entirely on Martin's rather shallow comic personality. To say I was disappointed is an understatement. The Jerk is a flat, dumb, and tasteless movie in which calling Steve Martin's character a jerk is almost an act of kindness. The whole movie seems strained and uptight. What should be zany turns out to be simply nervous. He makes us uncomfortable. Martin's personality wore me out, and eventually it crossed the thin line from being wild and crazy to being repetitive and tiresome. I think I know what you're saying with that scene. And Gene maybe didn't have such strong words to say, but he didn't necessarily disagree with much of any of that. And he said, we're always aware that it's Steve Martin laughing at what he's doing while he's doing it. We know immediately that it's Steve Martin playing a guy and says, look at this joke I'm going to show you. Now that can work on a nightclub stage where you know, you can see it's an actor and mm -hmm. he's a nightclub mm -hmm. comedian, of course. It doesn't work in a feature-length movie. We want to see a real character there. There's no character there. Jerry Lewis used to do the same thing, but it was Jerry Lewis portraying a stumble-bum kind of guy. Right. We're always aware that it's Steve Martin laughing at what he's doing while he's doing it. It doesn't and, work right. in a full-length movie. And there's movie. a problem there in all the scenes where he's with other people. Now, I mean, is The Jerk one of my all-time favorite movies? No, probably not. But that is not funny. Yeah. That, and Steve Martin is not funny? Right. That's the that's the part. And, and again, that was somebody that, um, you know, they were skeptical about for a while. And as to why, I, you know, I, I don't know. I guess, again, it's a matter of taste and the subjectivity of comedy. And if you don't laugh, you don't laugh. Um, it's not like Siskel and Ebert couldn't appreciate a, a silly movie. You know, they liked a lot of Mel Brooks's movies and they liked... You know, the Zucker Brothers movies in a lot of cases. So it's not like they are they're turning their noses at lowbrow humor. For whatever reason, like uh, this this Steve Martin, they really did not spark to. You know, later when he sort of started making a little more intellectual comedies, um, they definitely warmed to him uh, when he was leavened a little bit. But, I mean, part of what I love about The Jerk is that it's just that pure distilled Steve Martin energy. But um, they were not buying it. Two, two, yet, two no's. Not two yeah. thumbs down, technically, but two no's. <laughs> two no's. Two no votes uh, for The Jerk. Yeah, I would have imagined. I haven't seen that movie since I was pretty young. But I would have imagined both that film and Steve Martin at that time being unassailable. I was surprised to see The Jerk on your, your list. I couldn't believe they both gave it two thumbs down. So a great pick there at number one. Adam, My, quick report, quick report yeah. on Die Hard 2 here. No record in the archives. I'm sorry. But there, there is <laughs> it record. It hasn't been scrubbed there. from the record <laughs> intentionally? The files haven't gone mysteriously missing, Josh? 
There is a record, the title Die Harder, 10 stars. <laughs> Just the title, though. Didn't see mm-hmm. the movie. I mean, that is yeah, a great I... title. You have to admit. I mean, As a come title, on. come on. It's aces. Mm. All right. My two thumbs down, number one pick. In this case, yes, both Siskel and Ebert got it wrong. And I'm going to say it here. This, this beginning, my little spiel at the beginning is half-baked. Some people will probably hate that I'm even comparing this movie to this other film. But Matt, you, you mentioned the new Hollywood and Siskel and Ebert kind of coming of age with those films. And I feel like this movie could have been, or it could have had the potential to become, it did not, but we might be able to look back on it almost like we look back on Bosley Crowther famously panning Bonnie and Clyde and everyone saying, Oh, the guy's clearly lost his fastball. He doesn't know what this new cinema is. He's not on the wavelength with it, and maybe we can't trust his opinion anymore. And he writes a pan of Bonnie and Clyde in April 1967 and then attacks it like three more times, just doubles, triples, quadruples down on hating Bonnie and Clyde. And then within a year, less than a year, he's out at the New York Times. And most people think that, that that's part of it because it, it, was, it was time. He sort of showed that he was time. Now, it definitely wasn't time back in the early 90s when this film came out. But in retrospect, it sort of feels like they really didn't get Quentin Tarantino's directorial debut, Reservoir Dogs. On the basis of Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino there obviously has talent and a gift for using actors, but I was never really sure what he thought the point of this movie was. There are too many scenes of behavior and no scenes of insight. And as the guys assemble back at the warehouse, there's too much talk from characters who should really be unconscious or mad with pain instead of giving us all that dialogue. I liked the movie as far as it went. I wanted it to go further and try more. I had the same reaction, Roger. I thought it was a lot of an exercise in style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I got that really quick. Too much dialogue, not enough action. They both say it's just empty. Apparently, they weren't also fans of Seinfeld at the time because they say Reservoir Dogs just isn't about anything. And maybe the only reason it doesn't become, or part of the reason it, it, it doesn't become kind of this watershed moment for those two guys, is that it wasn't really shocking at the time to not like Reservoir Dogs. But a few years later, Pulp Fiction comes out. And they both go head over heels for it. And, of course, that movie takes the entire world by storm. So much so, Matt, that they they devote an entire 1994 episode to Quentin Tarantino, where they they know that they have to go back and acknowledge that they didn't like Reservoir Dogs at the time. And Siskel, they, they play the clip and they come out of the clip. And Siskel says he stands by that review. He wants he wants us to make sure we know that that he still stands by that review. And now they sort of spin it like, well, we we said he's got a talent and a gift for using actors. So that promise that we saw, well, now he's delivered on it with Pulp Fiction. And Chaz Ebert, she wrote about it in 2016. She said, when Roger first encountered the work of Quentin Tarantino in 92, He didn't know quite what to make of it. He felt that the director didn't do much with his characters, aside from let them talk far too much. Roger awarded the film two and a half stars and began his review by observing, now that we know Quentin Tarantino can make a movie like Reservoir Dogs, it's time for him to move on and make a better one. And then she says, and look, I'm not not going to make too much of this. I, I think her tongue is in cheek a little bit. She says, perhaps Tarantino was listening. Considering that his next film, Pulp Fiction, proved to be a watershed. And and I just love, I love even the insinuation, the playful insinuation that it's like, 
Quentin Tarantino needed to listen to Siskel and Ebert and catch up with them, not the other way around in this case, right? That they they needed to finally get on board with uh, with Tarantino. So that all said, too, we talked about Reservoir Dogs on the show, Josh. I've got three full pages of notes on what I think makes that movie so good. And again, this is revisiting it, not in the not in the flush of being a young cinephile who's blown away with kind of the pyrotechnics of so many of uh, Tarantino's rhetorical choices. This is this is just really now thinking about what I believe the movie to be about. And I think there's a lot more going on in that film than merely portraying behavior and i think it does a lot with its characters beyond talking too much and i will just leave it there because i'll encourage folks to check out our conversation about it in the archive we did a sacred cow review on 536 along with our top five films of 1992 again fortunately they did come around on tarantino in a major way a couple years later but in 92 they definitely didn't get why some people were going a little crazy for this little film reservoir dogs this is a yeah, this is a really baffling one uh, to me because you know we've identified certain patterns, certain things that they were not fans of filmmakers they didn't like necessarily. But I don't know. I did, this one seems like it should have been right in their wheelhouse. It's right down the middle for them here. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is not a special effects movie. It's not a you know there. It's a dialogue driven movie with a great script. Um, a lot of the complaints about other movies on this list do not apply to Reservoir Dogs. And yes, they loved Pulp Fiction, and they did do, yeah, which was fairly unprecedented to do. They would occasionally do episodes about directors or trends, or the, but to do a, one about a director who's only made two things, one of which they did not particularly like, that was really quite unusual. Mm. Um, and so the fact that, yeah, and they, and they liked... Jackie Brown, and it's like it, it really is surprising that um, that they didn't go for it, and uh, you know th- those. I don't know. I, I I don't think of of Reservoir Dogs as it like an exercise in style. I, I I don't know. I mean, I guess it is in some ways, but not in that same way that some of these other movies might be. Categor- you know, it's a different sort of style. It's a mm-hmm. different sort of flair, and it's. It's the the script and the words and the acting and the performances. It's like all of those things that, yeah, I don't know. They were often, all those things, they were often on the bandwagon with early on with other filmmakers. Right, and and praising in other movies or complaining that they were missing from some of the movies we've talked about for the the last however long. Yeah, it is... It is, of all the movies that are like on this, that we've mentioned here, the 15 movies or whatever... It might be the most surprising one, you know, like where, I mean, I die hard. I mean, I don't know. It's shocking, too. But at least that one got one thumb. <laughs> Reservoir <laughs> yeah. dogs, two thumbs nope. down. Two thumbs down. Those are our top five movies. Siskel and Ebert got wrong. Matt, this has been fun. Are there any other titles? We have certainly shared enough of them. Any other titles you quickly want to give an honorable mention to? Ones you considered for your list but didn't make the cut i would i would say if i could i would rather just after we've spent you know like two hours uh listing all these things they got wrong just say that with this is like 15 movies out of thousands and many of which they did uh quite rightly call masterpieces or identify as great films uh very early on 
many of which have special effects or are science fiction films or defy all of these sort of categories we've been talking about. Um, and I do think they were wonderful critics. And so I, I, I would just like to put that out there. I mean, I, we could, I could run down a list of movies they quote unquote got right on the show, which I would also keep track of in my notes. I mean, I could throw out a couple of them. Um, Robocop, Lethal Weapon, Wall Street, Big, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Midnight Run, The Naked Gun, Say Anything, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, uh, The Little Mermaid, Pretty Woman, Dark Man, Goodfellas, The Grifters, The Rocketeer, Terminator 2, Boys in the Hood, Wayne's World, you know, A League of Their Own, Glengarry Glen Ross, Under Siege, The Bodyguard. <laughs> I should do this like the movie phone voice. Nobody even right. knows what that is anymore. Are you just listing the table of contents from Groundhog that Day. companion? The uh, Sandlot. You know, the actually, Fugitive. Matt, that their show on Darkman may be why I decided to take Debbie on an ill-fated date to see Darkman. And that, that didn't did go not well? Go over, that did not no? go over too well. But to your larger point about you know turning this around, I think it's only fair and I'll go first since I'm springing this on all of us right now. I think we've got to end this by admitting a movie we got wrong. I mean, we've all been doing this for, for quite we, some, where would quite we some start? time. I mean, come and, on. Yeah. We've done uh, that think, top before you, Josh, we did that top five on this show. Oh, and you've never been wrong since I'm sure. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sure I could do a top five again. <laughs> I can no, maybe do no. a top are we get, Are we all getting too nervous? It's it's time to just end the show. I don't know that we really need to say it. I mean, I'm glad you brought it up, Matt, but I think our I think our appreciation for these these heavyweights came through on this show, but it is inherent in the topic itself, right? We had to build the show out of the movies they got wrong because they got so many right. Right. They talked about yes. so many films that influenced us that we could never really make a show out of that, right? That's so right. I I I hope that that does uh that does come through that they've got a pretty great track record and we had to narrow it down to about 50 films or so to choose from. I think the only other two that I really strongly considered were both from Siskel. One we heard at the beginning of the show didn't like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which I adore. Ebert fortunately gave it three and a half stars. And then he also somehow didn't like Field of Dreams. And fortunately, fortunately, there was Ebert with a four-star review for Field of Dreams. But Siskel Siskel didn't go for it. Those are two for me. Any others? Or are we ready to close this chapter on Siskel and Ebert? I think we've we've run, run the gamut. Okay. Matt Singer, your book, Opposable Thumbs, out momentarily. By the time some people hear this, It will be available wherever they get books. I hope it does very well. I'm excited that you're going to be on tour, hitting multiple cities. Give us some more information about where people can get the book, where they can come out and find you doing some readings, doing some signings. Yeah, um, I am coming to Chicago at the end of November. I'm going to be doing an event at the... uh Siskel Film Center, which I'm very excited about, um, with uh, Michael Phillips uh, is is the moderator for that. So that should be a very fun night. You can get the full rundown of all the events that we've got scheduled right now at matt-singer.net. And if I ever find the Matt Singer who owns mattsinger.com, <laughs> he will rue the day that he crossed me. 
Um, and in terms of the book, if people are interested in checking it out, I mean, you can certainly find it any, anywhere you want to get a book. You're uh, online or hopefully at most bookstores, you're going to be able to find it. You can go to, yeah, again, matt-singer.net. You can find a direct link to the the Putnam website. That's the publisher. And they'll, you know, they can direct you there to whatever, you know, your particular bookseller of choice is. You can find it there. There's the hardcover. There's an ebook. There is an audiobook. I I read the audiobook myself. So if this has not been enough of me, and you want nine and a half hours of me reading my book? I mean, it's I know it sounds great. So yes, that is another option. Uh, I, I think actually, I would have gotten it if Alison Wilmore read it. Actually, oh wow. <laughs> How dare you? Um, I I actually really loved doing it, and I I I feel like I knocked it out of the park. And I did the whole thing like the Massacre Theater voice, which I I thought was an oh, interesting choice. Wow. Great. Um, the director of the lovely. audiobook was was questioning it at first, and then after the fourth or fifth hour, he really started to kind of see where I was going with it. <laughs> he'd, he'd left the building. Yes, yes, but no, it's uh yeah. So um, if you're an audiobook fan, there is that there's that option as well as well. So yeah, whatever version of of it you want, you can find it at matt singernet is where you can find all that stuff. We will put a link to matt-singer.net. We will also link to all that information about the book. Don't put any links to matt-singer.com, whatever you do. No. I don't want that guy getting any traffic whatsoever. dream of it. But we will put links over in the show notes, wherever you get your podcasts, and also over at our website, filmspotting.net. Matt, maybe we should do this again before the next time you write a book. What do you say? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. If we don't do it again before the next time I write a book, I won't be speaking to you gentlemen for quite a few years. So, yes, I hope <laughs> so. Enough. I hope we can do it again before then. Okay. Congrats, Matt. Matt. Really happy yeah. for you. Thanks, Thanks guys. so much. And that is our show. Quick reminder that you can go to filmspotting.net, click on lists, find our top five page, see all of our picks for this top five and all other top fives. And also we will link to the Siskel and Ebert segments on YouTube where they discuss these films. Again, that's filmspotting.net slash lists. If you want to connect with us on social media, it's a little chaotic out there, but film spotting is on Facebook on Twitter slash X. I am as well. Adams at film spotting. I'm at Larson on film. We're both on letterbox, which is honestly right now the most fruitful place to be social media wise i'm dabbling as well and blue sky i've got a couple invite codes reach out to me if you want to join me there and i did start a larson on film instagram account as well i think we're both on threads too is that right adam we're on threads and film spotting's on instagram as well there you go all right so reach out to us through one of those places at least the current film spotting poll has us looking ahead to martin scorsese's killers of the flower moon we're asking what is your favorite three-plus-hour film of the last 20 years? For show t-shirts or other merch, you can go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener-supported. You can join the Film Spotting family over at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. You'll get Sam's weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows, access to the entire Film Spotting archive as well, depending on which tier you select. 
Out in limited release, you can see The Pigeon Tunnel, the new documentary from Errol Morris. I'm excited about this one. His subject is the writer David Cornwell, better known as the spy writer John Le Carre. Silver Dollar Road is out. Another new doc, this one from Raoul Peck, who made the very good I Am Not Your Negro about James Baldwin. This one is about a black family in North Carolina who spent decades battling harassment from developers who wanted their waterfront property. That is on Amazon. Out wide is Killers of the Flower Moon, the new one from Martin Scorsese, and that will be our topic next week here on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.